Hello, and welcome to The Quentin Crowbar. This is episode 199. It's the 26th of July. I'm Tom Francis, and with me here are... Tom Senior. And... Philip War. And the news this week is that um, everything's been killed. <laughs> no! <laughs> MS- well, that's everything. <laughs> I love everything. <laughs> uh, maybe you've broadened the scope a little bit of that news. But um, uh, MS Paint and Flash have both been killed. I think uh, MS Paint is, is, like, right now... You know, the very next update for Windows deprecated, it's deprecated or something. I think. Um, Flash is going to be, it's actually a very mild death. It's going to be, they'll stop updating it in 2020, I think is the news. <laughs> so <laughs> reports of its death have maybe been exaggerated, yes. but that is, um, bigger news for gaming because, you know, Flash games are a huge genre and have been for decades and kind of still are actually. Like they're not, it's less the focus these days, but people are still making them and, um, there are of... definitely b- browser game sites that still run a lot of Flash games. Yeah, um, you can. There are other alternatives now. You can make games in HTML5 and stuff. Um, mm. But it is a bit of an end of an era. N was in Flash originally. You didn't mm. play it in your browser, but it was still a Flash application. Mm. Um, that's a cool game. Other but Flash games. I used, <laughs> I used to play stuff on like Newgrounds and stuff. That yeah. was quite a lot of. Flash games. Wasn't desktop tower defense Flash. Yeah, but it was. Which is actually an excellently balanced yeah. um, tower defense game. That... I played that for hours and hours. I probably told the story before, but um, I was obsessed with a certain design that I believe should be like maximally efficient. And uh, my friend Ben just kept beating me with much more sloppy, kind of random lasers. <laughs> I was infuriated. My mathematical perfection must surely work. <laughs> I became a bit of a mad scientist. It was, was... Um, I call it the death flower because it was <laughs> a kind of rotationally symmetric maze where it forced the creeps to take, you know, the longest possible route, obviously. Uh, but in doing so, they'd have to keep going into the center of the maze and then back out to the corners as like doing sort of petal routes. And at the end of each petal was a kind of stomping thing that would do area damage to them. And it was arranged so that, um, it was diagonally adjacent to something, and they had to walk around all four sides of it. So that's got to be optimal, right? They're walking around all four sides of this thing. It's an area effect thing, and it was four, having four of them was just enough that you could spend all your money upgrading them. Um, and the upgrades are, you know, more efficient than, than having multiples of them. And uh, in theory, that should have been fantastically devastating. And it was pretty good, but it wasn't quite as good as my friend Ben's. So. <laughs> I think you needed, if I remember, like ice towers or. Um, yeah. Stuff that slows them down to actually, because the, the, the actual damage from those AOE blasts wasn't huge, but if mm. you slowed them down, you'd get, you could have maximized the damage there in those bits. But I always found like the missiles, like the homing missiles were like super powerful in oh, yeah. desert power defense. Yeah, I think I had some in the middle, because if I remember correctly, you could upgrade those so they had enormous range. Yeah. So you didn't need those to be close. Snipers. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, and just the standard cannons, if you upgraded those, they became snipers. Yeah. Right? Yeah, they're awesome. It's a good game. Yeah, an amazing game made in Flash, but, uh, Everyone enjoyed their browsers back in the day. Yep. Is, I feel like is Flash de- oh, is Flash the one that doesn't run on Chrome? Yeah. Because they switched to like, was that because of some security risk or something? Like, why did that happen? Yeah, I think it Chrome. might have been, um, and it also is pretty inefficient in terms of um, like CPU stuff. If you like. I think I might be just making this up, but um, <laughs> I, I feel like the push to mobile is what killed Flash. Is that people didn't, you know, the people behind um, mobile operating systems did not want to support it because it would drain battery life and um, slow your phone down and stuff. 
um, and just being like meta sport in general. Um, but I, yeah, I think also Google have always been pushing for HTML5 as a as an alternative and replacement for that, and they're you know obviously in a very dominant position, so they're able to just say you know a, any smaller browser would not be able to just not support Flash because that was the standard. No one would use it if that was the case. But then once Google had enough of the market, they decided to uh, leverage that control and kill the thing. I don't know if there's any kind of like company politics going on there about them and Adobe. Um, mm. I don't think so because. I think this is one of the things that like Google and Apple are kind of united on, right? They both want to kill Flash because um, the iPhone didn't support it, right? Never. Yeah. I think that's my first experience of Flash becoming irrelevant was when I got an mm. iPad, and suddenly you go to the websites I was used to going to for Flash games, and none of it worked, and there's no way to ever make it work unless you possibly, you know, break into your iPad using software to yeah unlock that stuff. But yeah, it is. It, uh, my memories, fond memories of Flash, apart from the good stuff that was on it, were just loads of just cheap, well, completely free trash games that were just like slime tennis, stuff like that. <laughs> and it all just kind of uh, bubbles, and it was multiplayer stuff, so two people could play on the same PC and just uh, play a stupid game at, you know, lunchtime at secondary school, and that was Flash to me. Those really lo fi games, which I don't know, the people making them must have been kids as well, you know, just. Yeah. Um, we talk about like really accessible. Uh, tools nowadays but Flash was that back in, mm. in its early days like for kids who were trying to make games and trying to, with basic graphics like Flash yeah. was where it was at so, I should yeah. have tried using it like as a creator and I never did um, I ended up using something similar um, for the PC Gamer cover disc interface that was made in Macromedia Director which I think <laughs> has some of the same like language and stuff so I used that but thinking about it that would have been a good route into game development. <laughs> I started to learn it, but that was more just for animations and things, and I didn't really get very far because I was using it on a friend at uni's PC because they were doing a um, a computer science course and had all the access to the software licenses and things, and mm. I could not afford that and don't pirate things. So it was like, yeah, that's, that's never going to happen. Mm. Um, but I must say that I don't... I haven't missed it much. There were a couple of things recently which um, obviously wouldn't work in Chrome and I had to boot up uh, Explorer, but they were notable for being very much the minority. It's happened, what, twice in six months and the other thing that I use it for is like Now TV, you know, I think that's Silverlight still. Maybe. Yeah, that's why I can't use Now TV anymore, because mm. no browser I have allows me to use Silverlight. <laughs> but yeah, so that's, uh, it's, I use it for, I think Orblands is Flash, maybe. That's a cute game. Um, but I, yeah, like, I, I think when iPhones and iPads started to be a thing, it was very much a kind of wait, what? I can't, I can't play this. I can't read this. I can't go to this website. Mm. And then over time, it's just been this thing of, oh yeah, I remember Flash. There is that one thing that I now can't see or do or have clicked on by accident. So yeah, if you're making those really small addictive games, you want them to be on iPads and iPhones. I think the moment that you know the mobile markets turn their back on Flash, that was pretty much the, the beginning of its slow death. Yeah, which is now beating up. I guess to put a positive spin on it, you know, browser games are not dead and mm. things being made in HTML5 um, is uh, a good trend because HTML5 is an open source standard controlled by, um, I think I'm right in saying, uh, W3C 
World Order Consortium, who are, again, I'm guessing, but I think uh, <laughs> a non-profit organization that exists to make the web better. Hmm. Um, and that, you know, that versus a proprietary system owned by a, a frankly horrible corporation, <laughs> I don't like Adobe at all, um, is a good thing. Uh, I guess the only question is like, how good are the tools for making HTML5 games? And I don't know about I don't know what the best one is, but um, Game Maker supports it these days right. um, and is very much geared towards actually like a lot of the, mm-hmm. I'm forever reading help files in Game Maker that tell me, um, uh, oh, you can't do this in HTML5, <laughs> <laughs> which is, uh, it shows at least that they are supporting it. Actually, um, I've seen heat signature run on HTML5, <laughs> which is completely fucking nuts. I sent um, my source code to the Game Maker guys uh, because I was having an issue that I thought might be um, to do with Game Maker itself. And, uh, just by the by, one of them just ported it to HTML5 and showed me that, and it basically worked. Not to the point that I would pursue it, like, you know, I don't want to actually go into that and support it. Um, but I was kind of astonished to see it runs at all. Yeah, but, um, yeah, so that's, it's really powerful, and Game Maker is really good. Hmm. I think it's one of those things where, like, the talk about it and the sort of the, the regret almost that it's going away is more to do with, but where's the thing where people are uploading scrappy, weird projects nowadays? And it's, you know, is it Itch.io? Do we look there? Is it like on mobile? But then again, mobile tends to have all of these restrictions and QA stuff that you have to get your game through, especially with Apple, but, you know, with Android now as well. Um, and so it's like, I, I think it's more a concern for but where's all of the subversive nonsense that doesn't really work? Um, (laughs) And that's more about, like, whether the people talking about it know where to find that stuff or whether that that isn't so much of an active scene at the moment or whether it's happening elsewhere or... Yeah. Speaking of game engines, Mm. as the uh, only non-games journalist at the table... How come you guys have ruined Unity for everyone? How dare you? <laughs> yes, I've been crime. reading on Twitter that you games journalists have, have destroyed Unity and now we, we developers can't use it. I don't know the corpse drops at the, on the, uh, you know, the, at the door of games journalism. <laughs> Deal with this. <laughs> the failure of this platform, which isn't failing. It's incredibly successful. Yeah. It's doing extremely well. And, uh, you know, I, I, don't recall a terribly negative article being written about Unity specifically. Um, but I mean, I tweeted out when this was kind of mixing up on Twitter and I yeah. never really normally wade into these things unless I'm certain I'm right and I can express it in 140 characters and no more. <laughs> um, to say that like, um, Unity has gained a reputation as a platform among, uh, a lot of gamers for having something to do with like some of the worst games on Steam. Some of the thanks. In part to the Unity store and the way that assets are flipped and games are produced that are trash is what I call them. <laughs> well, this is what we were talking about just then with the janky projects that don't quite work. Just for context, if anyone missed it, there was a uh, somebody tweeted something to the effect of um, here's something game journalists need to uh, answer for or make up for um, and link to a screenshot of a Steam thread where somebody. Somebody said something about a game and somebody replied to say, oh, Unity, um, 
that's the one word I need to hear before I know I'm never going to buy a game. Um, I think they were asking which engine it ran on, and they replied right. Unity, and then that person was like, oh, shame, I'll never play your game then. Or so, yeah. It was something so like this, that. This one person on Steam Forum has a very strong anti-Unity prejudice, and um, the implication was that... This is because games journalists have been telling people what engines things are in, or perhaps just making generally a bigger deal of what engines things run on than, uh, you know, uh, it, than it actually matters. Um, and that that has led to this anti-unity sentiment. But actually, I think probably bad unity games have led to that sentiment. And in particular, um, there's, uh, two things. One is that the, the free version of Unity uh, means that you have a splash screen at the start that tells them it's Unity. So the people who um, are, uh, you know, sort of the least professional end of the spectrum, which is both experimental and uh, really cool stuff, uh, and complete amateurs who've never made a game before, and genuinely malicious people who are like trying to just turn out any old shit and then trick people into paying for it. Like that whole spectrum all exists all on one end of uh, people who haven't paid for the thing. Uh, all of those people get Unity splashing up when the, when you play their game. And so some of that stuff, uh, probably all of that stuff to some people is, uh, you know, really not to their tastes. And some of that stuff is genuinely terrible. Um, and that's the stuff that people know is made in Unity. Whereas Firewatch, probably a lot of people don't know that's made in Unity. Mm. Um, and huge, I mean, just 80% of the indie game scene <laughs> is in Unity, whether you know it or not. Um, and uh, I, the other thing is that I saw this phenomenon of Game Maker because um, uh, almost uh, whenever somebody finds out that Gunpoint or Heat Signature is in Game Maker, uh, the first thing they say is, "Wow, that's amazing! Like, how are you able to do this in Game Maker?" And the answer is, "Well, I, I can't do this in anything about Game Maker. <laughs> there is no easier way to do this." Um, and it's because you know those people now know it's made in Game Maker. The people who didn't have that conversation with me still don't, even though it's, you know, said all over the place. Um, whereas the, uh, the stuff that's on, like, there was a Steam workshop for Game Maker where you can share, uh, these games, um, sort of just from within Game Maker itself. Um, and everyone knows those are made in Game Maker, and those are, again, the, the, the smallest scale projects, the stuff made by people just learning the ropes who have just put it out there just to test putting something out there. Um, and of course, generally that stuff is not as good as the, you know, finished release stuff by teams of six people, um, who are working for three years to make something as good as they possibly can. And that's the stuff where generally you don't find out it's made in Game Maker. You know, mm. that information is not hidden or secret. It's just not at the forefront. And I also think people just, People really like a game. I'm not sure they already ask what it's made in. Well, that's the thing. Like from like PC gamers' perspective, we, we kind of care what our about what our audience cares about, and we never get questions about what engine is this in. And the only time that it becomes a story is if, frankly, game marketing makes it a story. <laughs> and in fact, um, game marketing departments make engines talk about engines far, far more than the media do. And uh, it reminds me of the Id Tech Five stuff that was happening just before Rage was released where they released video after video of John Carmack singing the praises of how it was this, you know, mega textures and how it enabled artists to accomplish incredible new things by, you know, just drawing the entire scene and then mapping it onto objects. And then Rage came out and it suffered from, like, loads of technical problems. So on Peace Gamer, we, like, took videos of it and screenshotted it and let people know that it was, wasn't working properly because that's the point where 
the audience cares about the game engine really yeah like one one disgruntled person on a forum does is not the audience <laughs> that's just one thing i do just screenshots on twitter like what you actually see is people just want to know whether the thing works and whether it looks nice and runs nice that's all they care about and that's that's most of the time what we cater to uh, I think it's, it's different for game developers because anecdotally i've heard people do get that sort of backhanded compliment of oh it looks really nice for something made in <laughs> game engine <laughs> you know <laughs> here uh, and so I can imagine that if you have been on the receiving end of that quite a lot it tips over into some kind of I have a tipping point and you know this is the, the comment that breaks me and I'm <laughs> furious but that said I don't I have never referenced which engine something is in in an article unless... I, I don't think I ever have unless it was a specific and you can't usually do this in this engine and here's an interesting thing of how they made it work. Mm-hmm. like Because then that's part of the story, but not, not in a disparaging way, just in a kind of this is an interesting thing that you might not have the context to understand kind of way. And similarly, in all of the games journalism I've read, no one has ever gone, but of course it's an unreal, so no one will touch it. You know, like, no one has ever said anything like that in any of the stuff that I've read. And I don't know whether that's because I don't tend to be particularly interested in the technical side in that way and therefore wouldn't necessarily have clicked on the stuff. Or whether it's just not... I mean, I think the only time I've really written about a game engine was I interviewed Tim. Um, his last name has completely gone out of my head. Uh, Epic. Sweeney. Tim Sweeney. Um, and we were talking about the science behind a lot of the stuff that he was working on with the Unreal Engine, you know? And just... Because uh, they'd put out a demo... Uh, you know, that boy running through a field with the kite and there was like amazing flora and fauna that had been populated dynamically to respond to the, the slopes and the water sources and all of this stuff. And it was, but I was interested in just talking to him about how they'd used scientific stuff to inform the way that the nature in that demo had played out and things like how it's difficult to get skin to look right because a lot of the colouring of skin is produced by the way that light diffuses through several different layers and so it's not just, you know, it's things mm-hmm. like that. But mm-hmm. that was because it's an interesting process and it again, it wasn't really about the engine, it was more just about like how people use information and research from other areas to translate it into a particular technology, you know? Yeah. I don't feel like, you know, Games Journal's understanding how to build an engine or how an engine precisely works will inform the coverage at all, <laughs> based on all the stuff I read every day in the entire industry. I think this is one of those weird cases where a Twitter thread took off and went a bit nova. Yeah. Of all of the Twitter ructions in games journalism, and there are usually about eight or nine a week, um, this is one that I just looked at and was like, I genuinely don't see where this one has come from Mm. like what it's so far beyond anything that i've seen happening or any conversations that i'm aware of in i I think a lot of people (laughs) didn't know that anyone had that prejudice and they saw a screenshot of the one guy having that prejudice and assumed that there was a widespread prejudice against and there just is not that many people unity sounds fucking great if i was going to get into an engine like start programming learn learn some try with unity i think 
I wonder yeah. if it's just that thing of like any engine that you pick, someone's always going to say, "Oh, but why didn't you go for this one? It would be far better." Like armchair <laughs> designing, you know. <laughs> Do you get me thinking about like uh, qualitative differences, like almost feel differences between engines for shooters specifically? Because um, I've always associated Unreal shooters with a certain feel and bulbous characters. But when, the more I think about it, the more I think it's just like the art styles of the respective studios that have come to embody um, what those edges represent. So epic shooters are always like these kind of bulbous space marines. So I kind of expect that from Unreal, which is stupid. Um, <laughs> so I, I, and then, but then Source feels very specific to me as well. But then it, maybe it's just the, the Half Life games that I can come to associate with it, um, and id Tech games feel different as shooters as well. Uh, they all have different interesting limitations. The main thing I associate with the Source engine is um, that any time it's loading, whatever the last sound to play is, will just loop while it's loading, <laughs> <laughs> which is a terrible bug. Really. It's got to be trivially fixable. Mm. But uh, that's been in there since Half-Life 2, at least. Has it persisted to Source 2? Um, I don't know, actually. I don't think I've played anything in Source 2. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, Source is always... Um, you can tell it was Source because it's it, a relatively small kind of footprint area that you know you'd have to load zones quite often and it would do it quite quickly but you know Ravenholm is a lot of loading screens <laughs> if you gradually go through it which is why it seems like a lot of the environments sort of loop back on themselves to get, almost like prolong your time in the game space before it has to load a new area it's really cool and I love loading up like Left 4 Dead maps in Hammer and just seeing the way they design that stuff really really cool hmm. I think I quite like some of the loading the splash screens of just random things that just something to do with the game like often if something has a grant from a particular arts foundation or something that splash screen will also come up so i wonder if you know maybe there's just a swathe of people out there who just think that the georgia arts program is like a a game engine and the you know the endowment for the humanities is also a game engine (laughs) it's like oh god so many game engines what have you folks been playing um, I've been playing, well, let's start with Quern. <laughs> <laughs> wow. That's nice. Um, so Quern, which is Q-U-E-R-N, um, undying something is there's colon undying something. Uh, Quern is all you need to know. Um, and I, I basically, I need something to talk about the podcast. Um, cause I only played a few things this week and I picked a random thing from Steam that seemed to be relatively well received. And it was called Quern. How did you pick it? Was it in your Discover queue or something? Well, it wasn't mine because I was on the um, like uh, the generic PC Gamer Press account, and like you could be recommended anything <laughs> because like you've got some strange tastes. <laughs> <laughs> your tastes are everything. <laughs> so uh, chose to recommend me Quern. <laughs> the sum of everything is Quern. <laughs> I love to think that that's just the engine going <laughs> uh, Quern. <laughs> Disappears for like an hour and comes back. Uh, Quern? <laughs> I was like, Quern, I'm in. <laughs> Downloaded it, six, six gigabytes of Quern uh, on my hard drive uh, and dipped into it. And I, I didn't know what to expect. Like, what, what do you guys, when you hear the word Quern, what, what springs to mind? I think it's a first person puzzler set in like flat coloured, weird, surreal architecture and you just walk around and like experience things and push buttons. Holy shit, you fucking nailed it. <laughs> <laughs> I think oh, I'm thinking wow. of, there's a game called Cairo, which I never played, but always kind of wanted to, and that's kind of like that. <laughs> See, I was going to say it would either be a space worm or something from Bennett Foddy along the lines of, like, you know, GURP or <laughs> <laughs> what? Oh, yeah, 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 y
Falling down Q-U-E-N-R. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, all those limbs and they're going to different Well, ways. like, if it was him, it would be Q... Hang on. Q-W-R-N. <laughs> like, there, it has to be four letters, right? <laughs> Kroon. Quen. <laughs> you said spell the Witcher. Uh, so, yes, Tom is closest. Uh, it's not quite... Uh, you're completely right. You, you find, I'm weird how close you are <laughs> with that description. Uh, it's not... Like terribly haven't got it's actually very very conventional and it actually is exactly like mist and riven and abduction oh. and that precise genre of adventure games where you, as Tom said who Tom who has apparently never played this game but understands it <laughs> utterly uh, it is a first person game about wandering through a grey uh, island with surreal architecture solving puzzles <laughs> <laughs> indie games man. <laughs> <laughs> Um, and I've been in the industry too long. <laughs> <laughs> um, I've really, really enjoyed this actually. Uh, because, um, the, the trouble with Mist and Ribbon is that they're, like, their puzzles are so, so obscure that you have to be, like many adventure games, you have to be tuned into the internal logic of that type of adventure game in order to even start enjoying mm. its puzzles. Whereas Guan, uh, is, <laughs> like, its puzzles are very, very, um, like, st- very standard puzzles. So, guess what? There's a laser beam that you have to point at things and refractory things to solve a puzzle. There's a sound puzzle where you have to arrange jugs to make certain tones based on the thing you find somewhere else. Like, it's all really, really standard stuff. There's, um, one of those annoying, an, an annoying slidey block puzzles where you know how there's, you know, you've got like a, a three by three grid of things and one of them is missing. You have to shift them around until you get the precise configuration. That, that thing, you know, mm. all these really, really standard puzzle archetypes that have existed for forever. Um, and it's basically just a, se- a succession of those, but presented in like a very small, manageable environment where you, I found I don't really need many hints at all to get through it. So you almost kind of breathe through it and it makes you feel good. And it's really relaxing because like I, I take kind of solace in how grey it is and how <laughs> just kind of quiet it is. And there's, there's there are no kind of time pressure puzzles. And you're just linking things you've seen on one part of the island to something you, like a keyhole you see on the other part of the island, kind of hooking things up in your mind. Mm. And you spend most of the game kind of in your own head, just kind of piecing together the symbology of the island, you know, putting bits of puzzles together. And I find it to be like a really, really relaxing, laid back thing compared to a lot of the stuff I've played recently. So I was playing like Next Machina recently, which is like a, a berserk twin stick shooter. I've been playing Pyre, which we're going to go on to talk about, which is just a, like oppressive riot of colours, like it's so incredibly colourful, it's almost too much, and it's so wonderful to go into this like wonderful bland space where there are no things trying to kill you. There's nothing putting pressure on you, and you can just like pick up a stick and look at you know rotate it in your kind of inventory view and say, oh that looks that's got an octagonal end. I'll plug it into the octagonal thing I saw, <laughs> you know, back on the other part of the island. And uh, you know I've, I've really enjoyed it, even though it's been quite a it is just miss. It is just written. It's all those things you've played. Um, but these things seem to be much easier to make now in like 3D engines where, um, you can, you don't have to like pre-render those backgrounds. You can actually just create quite strange architecture very relatively easily now. Um, the first thing you see when you walk into Quern Central, um, <laughs> Central, uh, kind of area and it's like a plaza. It's just like, um, a pillar of stone and then a, like almost a lighthouse type structure on top of it. And immediately, you know, that's where I've got to get it to eventually. There's no sign of a staircase anywhere. You've no idea how you're going to get up there. But there are kind of weird mechanical holes around it and stuff that you think, 
I'm going to slowly build staircase to this thing, I'm sure. <laughs> like, you can almost see where the game's going from the start, and it's so, so satisfying to go through it. <laughs> so I've, I have really enjoyed it. It's very competently made. It was released in November last year. Which engine? Oh, <laughs> <laughs> oh dear, dear. Flash. <laughs> Surprising twist. What what kind of price point is it? Like, is it a full... I think it's uh, I think it's about nineteen quid. Okay. So mm. it's awful prices. Um, I think it's um, like my dad would love it. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I would certainly recommend it to him. Um, yeah, it, it it was a nice surprise actually, and it kind of reinforced my face in Steam a little bit, especially after kind of the Unity plot. People like constantly pointing out a lot of the crap games that are on Steam that are just total junk. Mm. Um, like being able to just stick your hand in a pick and mix and pull out something that is basically completely competent and well made and good was uh, was really pleasant actually. Awesome. And I would say the Steam review system worked in this case. Like I think, <laughs> um, like we've discussed in a few podcasts ago, like it's the foibles of the Steam review system. But I think as a, as a just general guide as to is this like junk or not? Like, <laughs> I'm, I'm prepared to accept like mixed reviews if. You know, I can scan some people's problems with it and think, okay, that's not a problem for me, I'll play it. You know, I think it's actually quite a... If you use it, it's quite an elegant way of getting around, yeah. avoiding those games. I really like now that they tell you why they're recommending something to you, or mm. like why they think you might be interested in it, or even just... They just tell you their thinking, basically. Like, even if they don't think you're interested in it, on the Steam Store page, if you're logged in, it will say... Um, uh, uh, if they think it is relevant to you, it will say... Um, we think it's relevant to you because of this. Like two of your friends have wishlisted it. Um, three of your friends play it. It's similar to these games you play. Uh, but also, if you're there and they don't think it's relevant to you, they'll have a little box saying, "Is this relevant to you?" <laughs> because we thought maybe not. <laughs> um, but I, I really like that. That's obviously just like a general page element. It's probably easier to have it always there rather than to have it, you know, turn on or off based on some logic. But that means that. It shows up even for games that you've played for like 300 hours. So it's like, relevant to you. We think it might relevant to you because you played it for 300 hours. <laughs> <laughs> Just a guess. Maybe, maybe not. But Could then like your option, I would probably say no because I've played it. Like, for goodness sake, I already know about this. Like, this is completely irrelevant in the scheme of recommendations. <laughs> yeah, true. <laughs> uh, hopefully it doesn't recommend things to you that you have already played. <laughs> Although, yeah, it doesn't stop Netflix, does it? Endlessly. Well, you might want to watch surfacing. again. <laughs> yeah, you might watch again this thing that you gave one star. Uh, <laughs> I have seen it and I hated it. <laughs> what more information do you need? Could you just give it a go another time? <laughs> you might like it this time. Have you changed as a person? <laughs> Look forward to the day when I play something on the press account and then I go back to my normal ordinary Steam account and it recommends me Quern. <laughs> In a year's time, I was like, finally the algorithm is correct. <laughs> We're completely in tune now. I'm one with the thing. My faith in algorithms has been restored by um, Spotify in recent months, actually. Oh, yeah. um, they're, like, they assemble weekly... Uh, sorry, a bit off topic here. Um, they assemble weekly playlists based on stuff you like or, you know, yeah. don't listen to. And it's super effective, I found, <laughs> and also kind of throwing in curveballs and kind of yeah. really, really well-organised. There's uh, an interesting ruckus it. with Spotify... At the moment, or at least recently, which uh, the New York Times podcast, I think, covered uh, in far more detail and with a lot more knowledge, which was essentially about um, Spotify setting up playlists like, for example, lots of ambient, chill-out-y kind of music, um, you know, instrumental stuff. And it 
it transpired or it's something there's this conversation about whether actually Spotify is populating those lists with not artists external to Spotify but people that they've commissioned mm. to um, write stuff that then Spotify owns the copyright to and it gets put on mm. these playlists and it's you know one of those things of like is that then drowning out people who would have made money by them being on that playlist but because people just leave that stuff going while they're working mm. yeah. they don't know or it can't pick up and you know then there was this whole related discussion of like whether that was real music because it was commissioned and it was like not an organic thing oh it yeah was, like art has yeah. never been patronized by anyone <laughs> i know like that was kind of the more sort of oh really end of the <laughs> argument but like it's a really interesting thing so well I, worth listening to yeah, that it's actually something i like about spotify is that because the way you come to the music is so independent of what it is or where it came from mm. or its origins or anything. You just know nothing about it. Yeah. Um, I sometimes get into stuff that is, uh, you know, I think I've got into this really used to tarot artists and then I discovered like it's one of the most famous songs in the world. <laughs> um, I, uh, something by M zero. I can't remember what track it was, but I, um, I'd never heard of them. And, uh, then I saw on Spotify it has 170 million views. <laughs> and so, is it like um? Is it like the like a, a Nordic language or so with a with a slash through the yeah? Uh, so it's like m or m. I don't. Ma, yeah, maybe, maybe it's not said that m? way. I do not know. I don't how know to because pronounce I only know them from Spotify. But from I know them right from a mixtape of Fred Perry because I'm cool and hip. <laughs> That's so real, Pip. <laughs> I think I might have actually seen them in North London at a showcase that wow. I went to one time. Um, I, but have you seen that you can actually get your? What is it? I, I think they call it Spotify for brands or something. But you put you go to a particular URL when you're logged in into your Spotify account, and it will recommend you stuff based on what you listen to or your like profile, your listening profile. Hmm. And I did that, and like I've essentially just listened to the m- most recent Metallica album on repeat, <laughs> uh, interspersed with Moana, um, for about. Four months now and it just essentially just threw its hands up like I don't know <laughs> I do not have the data to recommend you anything what the hell <laughs> so that was interesting <laughs> I also found a lot of music that um, uh, was really inspiring for like the mood of heat signature on mm. Spotify and I made a playlist of, like all the most kind of serene majestic glorious spacey tracks um, and then looked up you know for anything that were good I tried to look up the artists and find out more about them and then one of my favourite ones, I looked up where it came from, and it came from an album called Music for Alarm Apps. <laughs> <laughs> Which, again, highlights how um, discovering it through an algorithm uh, removes all your prejudices and things. If you ask yeah. me, do you want to listen to an album of a Music for Alarm Apps? I would say <laughs> fucking no. But if you play me that track out of context, I think, wow, this is incredible. I think like the, in Spotify, it's like... A- thing that the money or the, the the real worth is in playlists rather than in just uploading your album or something. Mm-hmm. You get people who are really dedicated to creating those playlists so that people surface their stuff and listen to, you know, mm-hmm. that kind of thing. I guess Steam has a, a harder challenge because they can't really do the equivalent of the weekly mix. Mm-hmm. The weekly mix, you know, if mine is 90% stuff I don't like. But the 10% is like, wow, I just discovered new music I really like that yeah. I never would have discovered otherwise. The, that's really valuable. Yeah. But for that, with games, you can't really dip into them in that same way. No. I guess 
It's you know, actually, playing with curators, isn't it? Because like, there's the PC Gamer one. There's like yeah, but just in terms of once you have that list, once it's delivered to you, you can't sample those ten games mm. in you know five minutes or. Um, well, this is why demos need to make a comeback. Yeah, as I was saying that, I realised <laughs> demos are good, and also um, trailers do give you a pretty decent sense of is the song, or at least they don't tell you what. They're not. Uh, uh, if a trailer looks good, it doesn't necessarily mean you're going to like the game. But if a trailer looks horrible, you're probably not <laughs> going to yeah. like the game. It's a decent predictor of things you won't like, I think. Um, and so what it could do is just pick out, you know, the queue, whatever uh, its selection of things it thinks you like, and then instead of presenting it as a series of web pages that you click through, um, like the olden days of web rings, it could just make a video for you that is just the first 30 seconds of those 10 trailers and uh, I guess that's five minutes of watching. But that's probably a Is title. a trailer a prerequisite for having a Steam game? Because um, I wonder whether question. obviously if, if some people just upload stuff without a trailer that might penalise them or there'll be, a, I, there'll be a kick-off no matter what. But I think it is, or at least like sort of the default Steam backend, uh, like, you know, the marketing images page there's a slot for video and i think if you don't fill it it's your checklist is not complete and therefore you can't release mm. um but i wouldn't be surprised if people if you can just like talk to your steam contact and say um or certain people have different relationships with um uh with steam and probably like you know someone like Ubisoft if they have some ancient game that they never made a trailer for for whatever reason they could probably still have that on there like it's probably mm. not an actual hard and fast technical requirement um, just, um, it's usually the case it's also like suicide to not have one because <laughs> <laughs> no one's gonna bother but it would be cool if they could do like a, a a weekly email service somehow you know if it was a gift from the game if it was like some cool screenshots you know just as a digest of yeah these There's, are some things based on your tastes. Yeah, they could build your wish list, um, almost like Steam's suggested wish list, and mm. you kind of just gives you the summary of each game and links to trailers, etc. Perhaps, mm. or um, I could just have like um, I'd be interested in following a provided people then didn't abuse it, but um, following Twitter accounts that actually you know, just tweeted out games in particular genres, you know, or particular art oh, yeah. styles, or with particular, you know, yeah. Keywords. Uh, so there's a Twitter account that does uh, micro trailers of um, Steam games. So it'll take the real trailer and compress it down to a, I want to say like eight seconds or something. Hmm. Um, uh, I'll look it up for the show notes. But that is the kind of thing where uh, that's quite nice to have in your Twitter feed. But also Steam did that and then just joined on. You know, for the first ten games in your queue, just did that back to back as one continuous video that you just sit there and watch. Um, I'm sure that would uh, be better than the current system you know for, for any given one you need to be able to click immediately and say let me show me the store page for this mm. but uh, just for getting an overview that's what you really need is just a huge oh, and for me as a developer that's what I would like that's how I'd like my game to arrive in people's um, queue I don't want to have to click through like 18 games and then the 19th one mm. they get to my store page where you know hopefully my trailer will be good but um, they have to that has to load and um, I have less control over like what they do Whereas if it was just one long reel, I feel like feel reasonably confident that people who are interested in the games that I make would, when they see eight seconds of footage of my game, stop and think, "Oh, I want to play that." Mm. I think it would be cool if maybe if it um, 
if it kept an eye on how many times you booted something up and then it asked you a one-off you know based on the fact that you seem to be quite enjoying something when you close it again just say would you recommend this to a friend like Mm. is there anyone you want to recommend this to yeah because that would be i don't think that would be too intrusive because it would only be after you'd actually gone into something a whole bunch of times and it would be a one-time thing so it would stop after that but i think maybe that would be a prompt to you know just you you seem to like this (laughs) would Mm. anyone else (laughs) do you want someone to play it with you (laughs) who knows (laughs) what have you been playing Pip um I have been playing Walden which I mentioned on the podcast last week uh, a little bit but only in passing um so it's a USC game innovation lab um project that took the book Walden um, by Henry David Thoreau and tried to convert it into a space around the pond that you could experience and gain, I think, a little of the understanding of where Thoreau was coming from with his writing. What's the book about? So the book is, he essentially goes to live in a cabin next to a body of water. Ah, And he's like, he yammers on about how self-sufficient he is and how he's like (laughs) living deliberately and blah, blah, the Mm. mass of men leading lives of quiet desperation. (laughs) Um, This is every, every Guardian think piece. (laughs) Every three months. Well, I'm just glad he didn't live in an age where he had an Instagram account. That would have just been insufferable. Um, but he, uh, essentially, he was actually camping in Ralph Waldo Emerson's garden. Um, and would go home and get his mum to do his laundry and things like that. And would sometimes just go into town and, like, hang out with friends or have people over, you know, that kind of thing. Um, so that's not to say that he doesn't have anything worthwhile to say, but it means that when you try and read it it can be insufferable (laughs) and you really just want to smack him one you know because he is so sanctimonious and so judgmental and so well i'm doing it properly why aren't you all of you people with your responsibilities and you know blah blah why aren't you stepping outside the rat race you know all of this kind of um so it's a very I am in a privileged enough position that I can pretend that I'm roughing it in a shack. Mm. Um, Glamping. (laughs) (laughs) But what I would say is, so I went in expecting to hate it. Uh, About half an hour in, I took a break because I was so angry with Theroux and his voice, because it's... um, the game will read you passages, you know, as you go around and, you know, it'll sort of talk you through bits of his philosophy or his meanderings through this year cycle of stuff that has happened. Um, and I did take a break to follow Chris around the house, telling him everything that was wrong with everything. Um, and I don't think Chris ever had a chance to even respond because I was like, and another thing that has happened. And I am that cross. Um, cause it was, you know, it was even just little things. Like I was actually walking along wondering what I would see, like seeing if there was a bird somewhere, you know, that I could hear. And then Thoreau is essentially like reminding me of my map quest. And I'm like, no. <laughs> Go away, you jerk. Um, so there were, there were bits like that. But actually, as time has 
past and I've gone through a few days and from I think I started off in maybe early summer I can't I really can't remember but everything was quite lush and verdant kind of thing so it was either early summer or late spring um and then you go through into sort of later and the trees are more um parched looking and you know the the land you know that tired coloring that Mm. a forest or a you know woodland gets after a lot of sun it's more that end of things um and it's become a lot less heavy-handed because i'm triggering new things less often um and so what i'm actually doing is i'm enjoying it and it feels really weird for me to say that still (laughs) um because i i just get to potter around and i'm looking at the water i'm looking at fish i'm Mm. having a walk in the forest and you know that thing that games sometimes do where they play you the sounds of birds but there's no actual birds and it's this weird dead thing um i was looking around to see whether i could see where it was coming from because it felt like the sort of game that might have something and i saw an owl and i'm like what that's amazing (laughs) and if you um if you right click you know how you do when um when you're uh, looking through a scope or something in a shooter right um that zooms you in ever so slightly so you can take a closer look and then brings up a little diary entry where through has said something about the thing and it's not entirely insufferable <laughs> like occasionally there's something that's quite poetic and lovely <laughs> so and the rest of the time you can ignore him um so i yeah i've just been enjoying that element of wandering around and having the woodland feel more like a place because even if you don't personally know what all of the trees are or all of the animals are the game does and will tell you so it feels a lot more like you're experiencing a space in a knowledgeable way mm. in, and that's quite gentle and quite nice yeah i was going to ask actually like what um what it brings to the experience that just going out into the woods wouldn't do mm. maybe that's it maybe that's- i think that is an amazing thing and it's um it's something uh that i would like to see more games that are about wandering try out because it would just be lovely to be able to switch on the thing that tells you a bit more about the space that you're in because mm. often like um firewatch is my go-to example for this because it feels like as the fire watcher you would presumably know a bit about the area that you're in you'd start recognizing trees you'd know plants you'd know butterflies that are that you see around and so it would actually be cool if the game could like fudge that sense of you knowing that stuff by just telling you what everything actually was as if henry knew it himself yeah that's right and you could actually develop a feeling for that and so and and also it it looks like a thing that was built in an old-fashioned game engine, to go back to game engines. But the the longer I spent within it, the more fond I grew of it and the more I found beauty within that. And mm. so that was an interesting feeling. And I think essentially it has opened up through in a way that I, I'm still not interested in him most <laughs> mostly but it means that i can engage with him a bit more than i usually do because i can choose to ignore some of the things or they're silly or they're gamey you know mm. or you know you you bump into emerson every now and again and he's like have you found my copy of confucius i left it somewhere <laughs> and it's like he's just left it on some random 
tree uh, somewhere on the other side of the lake and then you'll row away in a boat like oh god go away and then you'll <laughs> be on the other side of the the thing and then you'll go towards a um a, a campfire which is how you replenish your energy and then he'll be there and you're like how did you how did you get here you weirdo and he's like did you find my book yet like, i wasn't looking for your book i don't care about your book stop putting your books places <laughs> Fuck off, Emerson. I know. Like, there, there is a lot of swearing at Emerson and Theroux and most <laughs> other people. Um, <laughs> so you're all about Dark Souls. At least Emerson didn't follow you to every bonfire. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, like, it's an interesting one. It's, I think it's quite expensive. I think it's about $18.45 or something, um, which I think is about 15 quid. Mm. Um, so I... I really like it and I've been savouring the experience, which is why I haven't gone through a whole year cycle yet. But I do really like dipping in and just sort of seeing, oh, a jay, oh, a mink, oh, a hummingbird. Like, it's just really nice. Are you reviewing it? <laughs> um, I don't. So I'm not reviewing it that I know of just because I've got, well, because <laughs> I've got a whole bunch sure. of other things happening, but I've written. I wrote about it coming out and sort of tried to explain a bit more about what I'd done when I was playing it. And today, uh, Wednesday, I put up a video kind of walk um, on RPS to show <coughs> the experience of actually, you know, why what I was getting out of it that I didn't think writing about would do justice because mm-hmm. it's essentially, you know, wandering along and going, oh, that's amazing. There's like, you know, there's a bullfrog that I can like get up really close to before it jumps into the water. You know, it's things like that. Nice. And it was just nice. I might try and review it, but I need to get through my backlog yet. <laughs> How about you? I've been playing Pyre, which uh, came out yesterday. Yeah, um, It's the third game from Supergiant, who made Bastion and Transistor, um, both of which are beloved. Um, which one's Transistor? Is that the that's... one where you assemble a gun? No. You have a giant sword that talks to you. You're a lady with red hair who used to be a singer, oh, but now okay. you're mute, and you walk around this kind of strange digital city, um, beating people up with a talking sword. <laughs> Although you, you you never hit anyone with a sword. You stab the sword into the ground and then digital things happen. <laughs> receiver. I'm thinking of oh, receiver. Yeah, receiver Another super- radio word. <laughs> <laughs> it would be uh, interesting if uh, Supergiant made a super realistic gun fighting game. <laughs> no, I was like, that must have been quite a departure. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, it's interesting to look at what unites their games and what what divides them. Uh, I am a huge fan of Transistor mm. and I'm, I I like Bastion but I didn't love it. Um, and Pyre so far is falling more into the like but don't love category for me. I think Transistor is maybe a, kind of an anomaly. It is a game where you are... Um, so in terms of things that divide it from its, their previous games, the previous games had very particular main characters. You are, Maybe your main character didn't talk a lot because you're mute in the second game and in the first one I don't think the boy ever speaks. It's all narrated. The kid. Yeah, yeah the, the narrator sure talks a lot. But yeah. I think the kid doesn't say anything. Um, but they, they're designed characters you see on screen and certainly in Transistor you have a really strong sense of who this person was in the world mm-hmm. and their relationships and stuff. Um, and in Pyre you are a complete not just a blank slate but you're not even on screen ever uh, as far as I've played. And, um, people talk to you, but you are, it's almost like you don't have a body. Um, mm. you know, fictionally people are seeing you and talking to you, but you will never see yourself and you never, 
interact with anything directly. You're always just kind of behind the scenes managing. Um, and the actual game, it's kind of an RPG where you accumulate a party. Um, but the sort of, uh, I don't know if you want to call it combat or gameplay or, um, uh, the challenge element of it is uh, a sport that takes place. Um, you're in a place called the Downside and trying to get back to a place called the Commonwealth. And the only way to do that is to sort of redeem yourself through some kind of supernatural sport uh, that involves teams of three uh, fighting to throw a ball into each uh, into the enemy team's pyre, which is like their goal. And each time you do that, it does a certain amount of damage to the pyre. And if you do 100 damage to the pyre, it extinguishes it. Um, and you can only control one person at a time. Um, you have three people. While you're controlling the one who moves, uh, the others are completely static. They don't have any AI or anything. They just stay exactly where you put them. Everyone has an aura around them. Uh, if the aura touches an enemy, it kills them. But if the enemy's aura touches you first, that kills you. And you can also kind of fire your aura forwards. So you like hold a button, your aura shrinks, and you shoot it out as a kind of beam ahead of you. And that's a way of taking someone out who has, for example, a bigger aura than you. Because if you walk into each other, they're going to kill you. So instead, you fire your aura out. But while you're doing that, yours is shrinking or gone. And so you're vulnerable that way. Uh, and when you have the ball, you don't have an aura and you can't fire your aura. Um, so you have to kind of dodge the enemies and try and like dive into the pyre or throw it uh, over the enemies at the pyre. Uh, so it's it's absolutely a sport, <laughs> which is really strange yeah. for the a game that's so uh, rich in its fiction. It's so it's incredibly lore heavy. It's um, the aura stuff reminds me of a little game, like maybe a Michael Bro game or so one of those kinds of things, oh, yeah. where like you would tackle people to get a ball, but you'd have a certain amount of like shield around you. Mm-hmm. Does that ring any bells to either of you? Um. It's not video balls. Maybe I haven't played video ball, but that's there are a whole bunch of uh, mm. indie uh, imaginary sports that involve very simple mechanics or very yeah very abstract but but simple mechanics. They're and games this- that look like a kind of um, an abstract art piece that has come to life and now is competitive. <laughs> so Empire, you're not any of the people on the field. You are a reader uh, in the fiction. Reading is illegal, and you are one of the few people who can read. And so you read a book of rights uh, that tells you how to play these games. I think um, you wake up in a sort of in a situation that is. Um, I thought it was going to be like an amnesiac type thing, but as the game's gone on, it's become clear that the my character does remember their past. I don't know what it is, but when I have the chance to respond to somebody, the, the dialogue options are phrased in such a way that implies my character does know what what happened to them and and who they are and everything. Uh, but as to how I got here, I have no idea. Mm. Um, and it's strange that they sort of, they do make some effort to explain your role in this team. You know, the players are separate from you and they are out on their own the field and um, you have more than three of them so you can choose which ones you, you field and you're just in charge of everybody. You just make all the decisions. And then also when you're playing, you actually control the only person who's moving. So you literally do everything that you're, the people who have um, you know, the team members who outside of the games have personality and, and autonomy and, um, uh, are independent characters when you're playing the game are completely, uh, under your control. And that part is not as far as I played explained. 
Uh, I guess that's kind of natural for games. It's quite common for you to be a strange presence behind the scenes. But it's just an interesting contrast to their previous games where you're very embodied and you are a character in this world and you know, you're only controlling that character. Everyone else is, is separate from you. Here, you are in a strange managerial position. Um, <laughs> and also, when the game is going on, you, you get to completely control everybody. Um, and yeah, it's very kind of, I think the reason I like Transistor more than Bastion is that I, um, the world felt very cohesive to me. I could I could picture this whole city, and it felt like a one big contiguous place. Whereas Bastion felt like it was all in Bastion. You're in the sky, and the world doesn't exist until you walk into it. So you kind of walk into the unknown, and the platforms build ahead of you. Mm. And that was a cool effect, but it made me feel like this place didn't exist. It was just you know, made up as you go along, which is literally true. Um, but uh, it meant I couldn't picture this place. I didn't have any sense of it as a real place. It was always just a video game. It was always just a thing that is, exists to have some platforms and some enemies. Uh, and there is fiction to it, for sure. There's loads of background and stuff. But just visually, I looked at what was happening on screen and it just read as video game to me, whereas Transistor really read as a place. Um, and I think Pyre has incredible art. There's loads outside of the game. There is so much stuff <laughs> they've made. There's so many screens and transitions and animations and um uh dialogue and lore and stuff um kind of a baffling amount like from a developer's perspective i can't believe they did all this because i know that just making any screen with any ui on it is so much work and getting it to behave right and transition to the next one is so much work and so i avoid them at all costs (laughs) absolute bare minimum um gameplay and then like one screen of interface and then straight back to gameplay don't do anything else ever and they've gone the opposite route where you know you finish a match and then it will transition into a, a victory screen that goes on for a while and have a whole load of uh, voice dialogue about your victory. And then you'll have a post-game discussion with some of the, your allies. And then a unique scripted event will happen. Um, and then someone will ask to speak to you outside of the wagon that you're traveling in. And then you'll go outside and have a special conversation with them. And then after that, there's a whole unique system for you having a vocation for a little bit. And you choose what job to do for a while. And then after that, you have to choose what where you're going to go next, which involves looking at the stars and choosing from a map which as far as I can tell so far has had no actual uh, relevance at all. It like, doesn't need to be there so far. Yeah. It's only been one option every single time. Yeah. But there's a whole... Spe- like, their visualization of space is as intricate as heat signatures. <laughs> My game's to set entirely in space, and it's just to click on a star each time. That's it. Um, and I don't even know why you're clicking on stars, because it, what it means is that's deciding where you go in the world. And they have a world map that looks beautiful and incredible. I don't know why you're not clicking on things there. But then there's a separate thing where you do click on things in the world map just to choose one of two routes. And so there's a huge amount of interface and um, transitions and um, uh, loads and loads of dialogue to click through. Um, it's quite a long time between the actual games. Okay. Um, and I've seen that as a complaint that the people who don't like it... Um, are kind of impatient to get to the games because um, there's a lot between them. Um, and I think I have the opposite thing where I kind of, I really enjoy the character stuff. It's really well written. Um, I like all the people. They're all really interesting and, and um, very different to each other. The art for them is, is beautiful and it, it makes you excited to, to learn more about his characters. Um, your main team is uh, Hedwin, who is a fairly sort of normalish looking um, bloke, but his personality is very kind of upbeat and um, he's very kind and very nice. Um, 
which is different to the normal kind of um, hero protagonist. Um, and then Jodariel, who's this enormous woman with giant horns, who's um, uh, incredibly powerful and strong, and in, in the game she's slow. Um, and that's an unusual character archetype in itself. Um, and she has a, a very uh, kind of gruff personality, but also quite... She's quite sweet. She's very um, attached to Hedwin, at least. Um, and then you have Rookie. Am I remembering that right? It's the dog, yeah. Yeah, who was a dog with a moustache. <laughs> and that's his character. <laughs> I made him shake his moustache off. Yeah, me too. him out of it. <laughs> I, I did also, and I, I, I worry that um, I'm going to be shamed for this at some point in my life. <laughs> yeah, because it's kind of his thing that he asked me for my opinion. My opinion was, it does make you look a bit untrustworthy. Yeah. <laughs> Aww. Uh, <laughs> Both monsters. <laughs> yeah, that's tr- that's he, possible. He's amazing in games as well. Like, yeah, he's, he's super the fast. wind button, as far as I can tell <laughs> so far. Yeah, so um, dog op. Yeah, he's just so fast. I really like conversations. I haven't got on that well with the game itself. The game itself has a lot of rules um, and very abstract. All of the rules, you know, none of the rules make sense. They're all just mm. made up things. That just for some reason, uh, you can only move one person at, at once. That's part of the rights. Everything is the rights, and everything there's there's this written law of how that has to be performed. And so everything's arbitrary and not arbitrary. There's a lot of thought gone into how it's designed, but fictionally, you know, if you're asking why can't my character do this, it's because the rights say so. Um, how are they going to do? Like, if they ever have to rebalance it, like, what are they, <laughs> they going to have to rewrite the law of the yeah. land? You know? Um, yeah, they'll have to amend the book. <laughs> like, they'll just be something crossed out and then a footnote. <laughs> you know, some tipex. <laughs> be good. I found that like because it's such a weird. It's sort of basketball-esque in that you dunk a ball into yeah. a goal. But also, it's got this weird kind of power-up, almost MOBA-like skill shot type thing to it, where you're targeting um, Amy rescues across the battlefield, and there are barriers that are often moving. And I should say, like, every battlefield is different. It's incredibly amount of, you know, mm. attention that's gone into making every single place you go look completely different and seem completely different. Um, I think it's almost overwhelming. I think it feels demented playing it almost, <laughs> like I can't get a grasp on anything. Um, I would say that um, they do a really good thing with the text where anything that is a, a, a nonsense fantasy term or a name is a tooltip that you can mouse over and it tells you who they are, who they're affiliated with, and what their deal is. And that, every every game should rip that off. Like, yeah. <laughs> that's just absolutely fantastic. It's actually something Morrowind tried to do, um, and maybe Elder Scrolls games before that, where... There would be a bunch of context, and then one of the words would be a hyperlink, or a bunch of the words would be hyperlink. Mm. But in Morrowind, clicking that meant your character asked about that, and so you got the information, which was fine, but it did mean your character was constantly saying, "What is that? What is that? What is <laughs> right. this? I don't understand this." Yeah. Uh, whereas just a like a tooltip works so much better. It's just like your character knows this, so just if you want to know, here's that. Just mouse over it, and you've got it. And um, you've got these adorable little imps who just speak in these sort of chattering noises, and all of their dialogue is just like kickity boo boo poo and then you mouse <laughs> over it and it'll tell you what you know it won't tell you precisely word for word what it is but it'll give you an impression of what they're trying to communicate which is a really nice way of um, making text dialogue a little bit kind of language ambiguous yeah. in that sense of being like a part of a different species and that's optional as well so you can just sort of click through that stuff without ever finding out yeah. what the is saying um, but, but um, I think like uh, the degree of abstraction both in the way it's environment's presented but also especially in the actual kind of I'm just going to call them fantasy basketball games that you're actually <laughs> playing is that they're so abstract and so weird that I don't even, I don't know what it, 
what a good play looks like. Yeah. I've got no idea what it looks like to be good at the thing. You know what mm. I mean? So I feel like I'm just improvising and cheating with this little dog who I've put loads of like <laughs> speed buffs on. And um, basically, like I, I just zap the first person who comes near the ball and then get my little speedy dog to get it and then run around everyone and score. And that's been the entire game so far. And I'm, I'm like a couple of hours in now and that's been the entire... All the challenge of the game has just been that. Yeah, I have, I've never lost a game and I've played about 10... Uh, but I still feel like I don't understand how to play. I, yeah. I've actually gone to restart a game sort of four or five times, not because I was losing, but because I just screwed something up massively because I didn't understand controls or I didn't understand what happened to me. Or um, a really common thing is I, after you grab the ball, controls completely change. Yeah. So the thing that used to attack people will now throw the ball away. Mm. So you like if you're coming up on an enemy and a ball, uh, which of those things you touch first is makes a complete fundamental difference to what your controller is about to do. So I've had situations where I want to attack the enemy, I accidentally touch the ball, that turns me into ball mode, and now I've just thrown the ball past them, and now they're at, the enemy's got it, and I've ruined everything, and I've died. <laughs> and so at that point, I go to restart. And then it has an interesting thing about... Um, it t- tells you, you know, you can restart the, the match, and they've put in a special option for that. But when you do it, it says, um, you know, the game will continue if, even if you fail this whole match, even if you lose the whole thing. Mm. Uh, it doesn't end the game. And I'm uh, very on board with that, and I want to. I kind of hoping I do lose a match because I want to know how it affects things and whether it's like a branching thing. Mm. But uh, maybe realize like I'm in no danger of losing this. I've like I've scored like six goals. Their their pie is on like twenty health. Mine's completely untouched. I'm only restarting because I don't like that I screwed that thing up. I've screwed up for some bullshit reasons. It was just I didn't understand the game, Mm. uh, or um, it was just very fiddly to do what I wanted to do. And I had that feeling of like, shit, I could have done that way better. So I want to restart. Um, and so I don't because the, the, the game's warning puts me off. Um, but it's, that's my, that's been my experience of the games. I always feel so, like I'm fucking it up so badly. I'm always doing the wrong thing. I'm never doing what I intended to. Uh, every failure is just like, what? Why did that happen? I don't understand. It'll just say, ball dropped. Why did I drop the ball? I don't know. <laughs> um, and most of the time the AI is, is, you know, the fact that I've won 10 games whilst feeling I don't understand the game is a testament to how easy they've made those matches. As far as I can see, there's no difficulty setting, right? I didn't choose a difficulty. There are difficulty settings. If oh, you go to the options menu, you can choose Okay. Them. Yeah. Um, I didn't change it, so I'm on whatever the default is, and it, that's balanced to be easy enough that even when you don't understand the game, you can still win um, every Ooh. match. Um, and that means that I haven't really understood haven't learned whatever it is it would like me to learn about how this game works and how to play it effectively and make it kind of fun um, mm. it has its moments but I, mostly uh, most of the time the AI is, is just not that interested in scoring you know yeah. I've had moments where my entire team is dead like none of my people are on, on the field and I've got to wait for them to respawn and yet so the enemy just have an open goal and they still don't score they just kind of amble around for a while and then I respawn and I take them out and win um, but yeah I still don't have that feeling of like knowing what's going on and how to play it and to be fair much as I love Transistor I also had a clarity problem with that game the combat I was often completely unclear on what was going on or why I just died or why that happened. Um, I think their kind of communication as to like mechanics is, is not brilliant. They often, they have so much going on in like a small space that they don't have a good way of signaling to you. Here's why that happened. Yeah, that certainly extends to a lot of the stats and stuff because it is like trying to be an RPG game. And so you can buy stuff from merchants that improve certain stats. Like, and I'll mouse over everything that says plus two presence. Like, 
no idea where in the menus to find out what hell <laughs> presence is. And this is a, this is a chronic RP problem with RPGs generally. Mm. Like they don't explain their terms or what precisely yeah. in game logic that means. My heart kind of sank when I looked at the stats and it was like hope, presence, glory, and quickness. Quickness, okay, I understand what gotcha. that one is. Right. The other three, I can tell there's a probably equivalent to RPG stats I would understand, but you've chosen to name them things that I don't understand and therefore I've got to do so much like learning Guesswork. to get past this. To me this sounds like grand strategy where I'm looking at like <laughs> I don't understand the difference between influence and prestige. Like mm. what? <laughs> I think I do know what most of them mean now. Um, presence is how big your aura is. So it's basically strength. Um, write that one down. Yep. And glory is how much damage you do to the pyre when you score. Yeah, okay. And that was that's something that's never explicitly flagged up to you, but that was a big revelation to me because that that fast guy Rookie hmm. um, does way less damage to the pyre. He does right. fifteen, whereas Joe Dariel does thirty. Hmm. Um, so what I've been doing, I did early on. I just used Rookie and ran past everyone, and then the first time that failed, um, I tried Joe Dariel. Because uh, she has a bigger aura than everyone else, she can just stomp towards everybody. She's incredibly slow, but no one can really stop her because mm. the best they can do is like aim a shot at you, in which case you just aim a shot back at them and and usually kill them first. Or if that's not going to work, you can just jump out the way. And then as long as you don't have the ball and you're not aiming a shot, your aura is so big that you just kill everybody you walk near mm. and they can't do much about it. The AI, as far as I played, is not uh, yet uh, aggressive enough to sneak around you it's always going to go down kind of the central channel already so you can just stomp towards them and they'll just die on your aura mm. and then once everyone's dead then I pick up the ball and just trudge slowly <laughs> just like dunk it in or you can actually at that point just throw it in which I think as far as I can tell that doesn't get you any less points right throwing it if you have to charge it up uh, if you just uh, throw it in with like almost no charge it will score less points it seems uh, really? but I think you have to fully charge it to score uh, more points that explains it because I, I remember Checking with Rookie and getting 15 points for throwing it, and yeah. thinking, okay, that means there's no there's no score drop off. But then at the same time, I have seen me get 10 points for scoring, and I'm like, oh, I don't think any of my characters have glory that low. Because hmm. uh, if you dunk it, uh, that gives you the maximum points, but that character dies, <laughs> it kills them, <laughs> and then they don't respawn for an amount of time that's determined by their hope. The hope is respawn oh, time. Oh god. <laughs> um, except sometimes it's infinite. <laughs> I don't know why but sometimes it just says my respawn counter on like Rookie is just infinite it's just, just gone and I'm just like why did that happen that, that's a pretty important mechanic to explain I'm just going to lose a character yeah, yeah, for the yeah. entire game to me like because I've heard I've had Brendy try and explain it to me I've had you two try and explain <laughs> it to me and like every time you do it feels like you know when you go to a fancy hotel and they've got one of those ridiculous beds made up that has about five million different layers of sheets and like a throw and some pillows and some cushions and you're not sure which <laughs> ones are the pillows or the cushions <laughs> and you're not sure wh- how many layers of sheet down are you supposed to go before you reach the part where you're supposed to sleep and they're all really tightly tucked in so you have to wrestle with it anyway. Mm. Like that's what I'm thinking of here. It's just like how... I can't even see the shape of the bed under the the layers of things that you do in the game. Like yeah. it feels like it's like three different games with a million different toppings on top. And I, I yeah. the, the core um, challenge system, which is the way to put it, on um, it made me crave a combat system where it's just killing people. <laughs> I understand <laughs> the victory conditions in wiping out a triumvirate of opponents in that scenario. Like, uh, And I, I don't understand this weird sport that you invented. 
and I, I'm, I'm enjoying it because the art is just luscious and you know production value wise the, the music by the way is fucking great we could yeah. over the trailer a while back didn't we like that was one of our newses mm. at, at the beginning of a podcast yeah. I think uh, the, yeah the music's absolutely yes, the music just goes throughout and I think it's yes. pretty much unique for almost every yeah. situation it's, it's pretty and, and it, like, there'll be like when you encounter the bad dogs you get like, like uh, fucking rock metal <laughs> like it changes style every few seconds but somehow feels seamless and feels in world so even though it's you know using loads of kind of very modern and um, I think fictionally the, the wandering minstrel who's with you is actually playing it like yeah, on his <laughs> because banjo. That, yeah, yeah there's an option uh, you can kind of click his banjo I think it is to, to hear tracks that you've already heard to like replay soundtrack basically hmm. and so I think that means that he's actually playing <laughs> so when you meet the bad dogs and the thrash metal plays he's doing the thrash metal <laughs> <laughs> look at those bad dogs uh, and it is beautiful. I mean, I feel no attachment to the world whatsoever because it's so mad, um, which is a shame. And even that, and this, I almost like wonder if you're going to double back over those areas of future and kind of because there are all these peripheral stars just around yeah. the main stars that feel as though they might become things. So it's very early to say to deliver a kind of verdict on what the actual kind of overall world thing is like. Yeah, they said it's their biggest game yet, mm. so I have a feeling it's going to just keep going and going and and be like a really you know, an RPG length RPG. Um, so I'm quite interested to see what goes. I should say I'm actually enjoying it, <laughs> despite all my criticisms. Like, it's just, uh, their production values are so high and yeah. the writing is good and uh, it's a bunch of cool characters. It, you know, it's as close to Mass Effect as, as anything else in terms of just having a bunch of that crew that you accumulate and when a new person shows up, uh, learning more about them and having, like, one-on-one chats with your... Um, with certain people to learn more about their past and stuff, that part it all works really, really well. Um, it feels and like it, does it feel like going just on. needed an editor, like to to say this thing is one menu screen too far, or this <laughs> thing is like just just simplify some of the rules down, or show yeah. people like the I don't know, like the Babby version of this that would get taught at purgatory school, you know, like the little league version, <laughs> or you know. Yeah, I definitely first. wanted I wanted them to take away half these mechanics for the first five things or something. Just just let me focus on like firing my aura at people, and only once I'm good at that. Tell mm. me about the ball. And then when I got the ball, <laughs> like, uh, put me through, uh, much more of a kind of boot camp for this stuff and teach me individual mechanics. Cause it's, uh, they don't, like I say, it's not hard and not failing ever. It's just, I just win and then I move on and I haven't learned anything. <laughs> Structurally, it's very similar to the Banner Saga, which is, I think, like a very good format for this sort of game where it's got traversal periods where you make, uh, like, if, binary decisions and conversation decisions and kind of resource decisions and then it gives you a, a combat or in this case fucking weird fantasy basketball um, blitzball yeah <laughs> something no one understands <laughs> sacrifice yourself by dunking the pyre and <laughs> immolate yourself for points um, yeah so uh, and, and it's kind of cool to see them under the studio pick up the banner saga format as a way of structuring an RPG um, I'm looking forward to playing more of it. I, I'm really not sold on it at all so far. Like I've really, I find the 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 rituals, which are the combat basketball bits, to be not very interesting in terms of like the decisions mm-hmm. I have to make moment to moment. Not interesting even when I actually score a dunk. You know. Yeah. When I watched the trailer, I I thought, or maybe it was a playthrough. Um, the way I thought it was going to work is not really how it does work. Where because you only control one person at once, and everyone has an aura. Uh, it looks like where you leave your other two people 
is you're almost leaving like like sentry guns or something because they they still project their aura and enemies can't go through that. Okay. And so I thought, oh, it's cool. You like place your two defenders and then you sort of control your attacker to go off and like uh, run interference or try and get the ball. But actually, anyone you're not controlling is just dead. Like mm. any even Jodaria with her enormous aura, the smallest uh, weakest player on the other team can just aim their aura at her and destroy her in a second. Um, <clears throat> so either you r- rush right back there and, and defend her. Or you control her and defend her, but either way, there's no there's no element of leaving people where they are and just that being a defense measure. Mm. Uh, the people you're not controlling are basically useless. You just, yeah, yeah. As far as I can tell, I mean, obviously, <laughs> by my own admission, I don't understand the game yet. <laughs> I'm kind of hoping there is a you can practice, um, and actually, there's trials as well, so you can do like practice games that don't matter, which is cool. Uh, although, again, there's not a lot. No just... difficulty. And they're too easy for me, even though I don't understand the game. I, you know, I, I win easily. And they even add like an extra thing where the enemies won't fight back until you first take the ball. So and my tactic is to wipe everyone out, then take the ball. So it's like, when I wipe them out, they don't do anything. Um, and so yeah, so I don't, I don't feel like that's solving it for me. But there are individual trials for your individual people because they all have different skills to some extent, hmm. and uh, they've handmade trials for each individual member, so you could you can get better at one player by just doing their special challenges. I tried one of those and it was too hard for me, <laughs> So, um, but I'll go back to those um, and hopefully learn. I, yeah, I, I'm still optimistic that the, the games might just click at some point and I'll get into it, hmm. but it's kind of a weird situation where it's both too easy and I don't understand it. <laughs> it might be a case of watching a like YouTube, like yeah. how-to or something, but yeah. Mm. yeah. Which uh, players are you using, Tom? I'm, I'm still... Defaulting to the first oh. three, actually. But it's very cool when they introduce, like, um, a little kind of... They're called imps. So you, you get an imp. This isn't really a spoiler. But the way they move around the battlefield is completely different to the way every mm. other character moves around the battlefield. I tried that out and I thought, well, I'm not going to use this because I barely understand controlling three <laughs> normal people. <laughs> but it reminded me of Transistor in the sense that, like, you could find one upgrade in Transistor that would change the way a skill works completely and yeah. actually, you know, really refresh the game. And they'd introduced a character who basically did that. Like, the way you play with that character is completely different to the way other things play. And I thought, oh, well, maybe that, like, this does actually have a lot of the same kind of design ethos behind it. Yeah, like, and like Tom, I just don't understand what the hell is going on. Um, <laughs> Um, but yeah, that, that was a, that was really encouraging. And yeah. what did you name the? Uh, you meet a character who can't remember a name, and for some reason you get to choose her name. Um, I like really predictably called her Thay because uh, okay. she is just an elf. <laughs> you have to call her something ending in A <laughs> for reasons that I won't explain. Um, but they there are two pages of options for this. It's like, this is again, as a developer, is really interesting to me because there is a dialogue system and you have a number of responses and it's quite a, a generous dialogue system where you can have up to, I think it's like eight or ten responses to a question. And for choosing this person's name, they have two pages. So you have the, like the ten options and then like the tenth one is see more options. Oh, and you click that and there's another ten options because <laughs> they really wanted you to have it like... 20 options for this and it not It would be 10. amazing if you clicked that and it was like, she is now called See More Options. <laughs> <laughs> What's your name? Options. See More Options. <laughs> it's like a Bart Simpson prank call. <laughs> See More Butts. That would be great. But it's a voiced game, so they refer to her by name in uh, the voiceover okay. all the time. So they've done that for 20 I different mean, variations. The, the voice is beautiful, actually, I think. Yeah. They, they have this kind of... Um, a fake like fake language that 
everyone speaks in. It's like Zelda, so everyone says, you know, a line in their fake language. But the detail they got into, like, the intonations of them actually match the dialogue that's happening. In, yeah. Um, I like, don't know what they've done there. I don't, I don't know, know either. <laughs> how much of it is unique and how much is generic. But, and the fact that we can't tell is, means they've yeah. done a fucking amazing job with that God. stuff. Yeah, because, yeah, there were uh, quite a few times I've noticed, like, the intonation of what they said matched exactly yeah. the tone of this thing, even yeah. though this tone is very esoteric. It's not like a general snarky thing or general happy thing. It's like this particular line really suits the way they said that. Yeah. Um, so that name, I chose Che, but Bay is one of the options. <laughs> and you can mouse over all the options. And I don't know for sure whether these are randomly generated um, or randomly picked or whether they're all pre-written. But every single one of those 20 options has a different mouse over thing for like as you mouse over it your character thinks oh she looks like a Che or she could be a Che I suppose probably not though um, oh most of them are like uh, here's what your character would be thinking if you said this mm. but the Bay one is like she can't be a Bay can she <laughs> <laughs> like surely not <laughs> oh my god That's, I really I really want to know if that decision in some way paid like why why did they go to so much trouble about this one choice <laughs> When it's so particular, so specific, like they really felt like they had something in mind when they did this. Yeah, I, I, like you told me, I'm going to keep on playing it because I feel like I'm not equipped to review it or really <laughs> deliver any sort of verdict on it, given how strange it is. Yeah. But it is beautiful, like production values wise, it's astonishing. Yeah. Shall we do questions? Yes. Good. Do they have some? <laughs> um. Talmar writes, looking back on a biography of near, nearly three, sorry, nearly 30 years of gaming, I realise one thing that seems to be a real problem that could be called a grudge. People often claim that games of my childhood were hard due to lacking checkpoint saves and limited number of screen lives, etc. I actually think this is nonsense. Those old games might have been hard, but they were much more readable. Original Civilization could be a real challenge on harder difficulties, but you always knew what to do and didn't get, dr- and, sorry, didn't drown in options. Microprose flight sims were a challenge, but you could manage without hours of training. I know that most of the modern successes are better at simulating the worlds they want to create, but for me, they often take too much time to get over the initial hump. Do you know about any games that actually become less fun when the series added complexity? Keep up potting, Talmar. Tetris. <laughs> <laughs> sure. Um, it's an interesting point. It's, I mean, he says that... Uh, um, that it's nonsense that the games of my childhood were hard, then he admits that they were hard. <laughs> so, I think it's not nonsense that they were hard, but it's a good point that they were more readable, because that's certainly true of Civ. Like, I look at Civ now, and I'm just like, what the fuck does any of this mean? <laughs> it's, it's really lush and, and you know, more closely depicts what it's trying to depict, but I can't, in game mechanics terms, I can't tell you what's on that tile. I'm assuming a certain amount of that is um, just in terms of the actual tech and the limitations thereof. You know, you just couldn't have as many spiralling different options and yeah. different like graphic effects happening on screen. You'd have to sub, um, you'd have to choose what you wanted and really highlight stuff. And also maybe just you had to work hard to get contrasts up and stuff like maybe if it was an isometric game you know you certain things would just look so weird or fade into the background so you'd have to work to to make those things pop out and be legible yeah um but you know it was a kind of maybe more of a 
binary, like either it made visual sense or you couldn't tell what was going on at all. Yeah. Because there wasn't so much gradation of graphical like quality. Yeah, definitely those with fewer colours you had to be more strict about your visual language in terms of what's solid and what isn't. Um something we struggle with uh a lot these days with really lush, beautiful art is like but which bits will block my shot <laughs> and which yeah. bits are uh, and it's really hard to get right, even when you have a clear visual language. Communicating that to the player is a whole other thing. In like um, relatively like low pixel games in the past, especially with regards to RTSs, strategy games, stuff like Command and Conquer and Dune and Dungeon Keeper, the bottom entire third of the screen would be devoted <laughs> to telling you what like mathematically was happening in your game um, when you clicked on a unit. It would devote all that space to telling you that stuff. Mm. And that's that's gone out of fashion, but hasn't necessarily been replaced with an equivalent way of actually giving you that same information. Even as games have been become more complex, particularly the way units operate in RTSs and that kind of thing. Yeah, that's true. Do you remember? You know, Doom would have a whole bar at the bottom with all your ammo and keycard information and stuff, but also um, you could shrink the screen size further than that, and it would just sort of insert like a border around the screen. Because in those days, you couldn't sort of scale up low-res art to high-res. Um, if you wanted lower-res, you just literally reduced the size of what's happening. Yeah. <laughs> so you could play on like this huge green border and then a tiny little window in the middle, and that would make it run way faster. <laughs> I wonder how much is also the fact that like games have um, become ubiquitous and they have built up player bases that have now aged up if you see what I mean. And so they have a language that people are assumed to know and that they build on rather than going from first principles. Hmm. Um, I don't know if I'm expressing that particularly well, but I I, I feel like in some ways people uh, who are, I don't know, 14 today um, are expected to be able to get to grips with really complex shooters or MOBAs or, you know, CCGs with like loads of different numbers flying all over the place. And it builds on a language that it's assumed that you understand already. So it's like, well, the blocks are there. So we're just like doing the next thing along. Whereas the stuff that was maybe more in the eighties was you know, okay, so it's unlikely that literally everyone has this stuff apart from maybe like Pong or something, you know, but <laughs> or, you know, some basic bits and pieces. But, you know, you wouldn't necessarily have a home computer. You wouldn't, you know, you, maybe one of you would have a console, you know. it's Yeah, CCGs especially um, trade so much on Magic the Gathering, which is already an incredibly complex game. Mm. But in terms of the way they present their stats and stuff, it, it, there is, it's modelled so closely on that format that it feels as though it, does expect a little bit of that that knowledge, though the success of Hearthstone suggests that people can kind of get past that, I suppose. Mm. So, I suppose uh, distribution yeah. as well, because all of the rubbish things that people made back in the day wouldn't get the distribution. There wasn't a Steam to shovel them onto, there mm. wasn't a, an HEO to just like dump them on when your you know little project had run its course or you'd lost enthusiasm for it that kind of stuff was there a grudge that we needed to assess or was it <laughs> the question just a general was, uh, <laughs> do you know about any games that actually become less fun when the series added complexity oh okay we didn't um, answer that yeah <laughs> uh, as is often the case with our questions the, the sort of the story is more interesting than the question i don't have a good answer for the question but the uh 
Uh, the issue is an interesting issue. I think the theme here is that we've touched on already in the podcast is with regards to like Pyre's stat system mm. is that games like so often hide the, the gritty stuff that they actually run on these days. Mm. I found this massively with Dark Souls when I was starting to get into it. A game that has dozens and dozens of stats and you can like go to a menu and press select and go through them one by one. But it's fine to tell players, I think, this is going to increase X by 20%. You know, mm. and not to obfuscate it because uh, especially if all of your progression systems are based on growing those stats how on earth is the player supposed to make a decision about what's a good upgrade or what's an you know, int- interesting upgrade what they want to do yeah I think Call of Duty might be a thing to mention for this for that question um, as asked in the email though because um, obviously it's now a yearly franchise that has to change things up just for the sake of being different of the previous iteration and obviously that's not to be dickish to the people who just happen to work on these things but like it has to be different to the previous one in order to sustain the you know that's why you need to buy this you know the different things there's different you know kill streaks that lead up to this thing there's different maps there's different armor there's different prestige things that get bolted onto all of that and that's why you now need to only play this version for the whole year for the Mm. competitive scene and you know all of that kind of stuff and i think that in the last few that i've just dipped into it has often felt like just an overwhelming amount of nonsense and bells and whistles that i have to manage when it would just be quite nice to you know shoot some internet jerks in the head you know like it would just be nice to do the sort of the the pleasing aim and reward side of it rather than have to then go okay well what's my loadout what's this thing what's Mm. that thing in in that granular way that it now seems to demand yeah i mean complexity isn't depth that's what that's the big problem i had with the latest civ where it was endlessly complex but None of the decisions were interesting. It was mm. all about just, and the same occurs with like Call of Duty stuff, where ultimately you're slave to this very slowly progressing progress bar, obviously between matches, XP leveling systems, etc. They give you bit by bit, and it creates the illusion of complexity without actually giving you anything interesting to think about, or mm. actually really changing the way that you play the game. Just as basically a counterexample of this. Um, with Into the Breach versus XCOM. Okay. Because I was playing that again just recently, um, and I can't say much about it, uh, but I want to say again that it's really fucking good. <laughs> <laughs> this is the next game from the FTL people, and oh, it's yeah. a, um, a turn-based game where you have a team of three mechs, and you're um, they are like uh, Pacific Rim-style mechs, and you're fighting giant... Um, Kaiju uh, style monsters and it's that turn-based. sounds amazing. <laughs> it's on an eight by eight grid, so incredibly small battlefields mm. compared oh, to XCOM. Oh yeah, we've spoken about this. Really, before, yeah, really streamlined, and the sprites are like gorgeous pixel art, but they are so they're simple to the point that like um, all enemies are always facing the same way, mm. even when the actual enemy is shooting, you know, in a different direction. Uh, there's, there's only one rotation for the sprites. Um, which is exactly the kind of restriction you would have had back in the day, like in the 90s or something. Um, and uh, in general, the reason, one of the reasons it, it works um, so well for me is it's just so clear. It's just 100% upfront about everything that's going to happen. Mm-hmm. In fact, there is no way for an enemy to do anything to you that you don't get a whole turn's warning about. Like mm-hmm. everything they can do is like, I'm going to attack you here. 
and then you have a whole turn to do something about it. And every action you can even consider as you're moving the mouse around, it's telling you exactly what will happen. This guy will get knocked back. This guy will take three damage. You will take one damage. Mm. There's no uncertainty in it at, at no, all. That's awesome. And think... uh, the difference between that and XCOM is really pronounced because XCOM, I'm always like XCOM two. Um, I'm always I have an idea of what's going to happen, and I execute the turn. And it fucking doesn't. Something totally different <laughs> happens, and it's absolutely critical. I'm like, oh Jesus Christ. <laughs> I think um, even though you can't really talk about it now, uh, I think we talked about Into the Breach on the GDC special pod. Yeah. So maybe if people were curious about that, they should go back and listen. Yeah. Yeah, that's a, a really good example of upping the clarity and having a really good effect. A person on the internet writes, Dear Pabcro Picretso. Sure. Uh, anyone... <laughs> Pablo Picasso. Uh, games like Mondrian and uh, Apotheon, I don't know how to pronounce either of those, uh, were both stylistically inspired by a specific kind of art and or artist. What artists or artistic movements would you like to see adapted in a similar way? I'd love to see a game developed in collaboration with Aboriginal elders telling Aboriginal stories in a style inspired by dot paintings of the Western Desert Art Movement. Speaking of art, kudos to Pip for her excellent state of art columns on RPS. They're equal parts insightful and delightful. Oh, thank you. Thank you all for the wonderful pods and the brilliant work you do. Uh, you each do elsewhere. Cheers. Uh, P.S. Sorry for the wordiness. He says of a, like a five-line email. <laughs> that's all right. You can you can write that much. That's this fine. is an unusually concise email. <laughs> oh, maybe maybe it's, that's his joke. Um, I had not heard of the uh, dot paintings of the Western Desert Art Movement, so I googled them, um, and they're really cool. They're a type of um, they're an art style uh, by uh, Australian Aborigines and um, I would like to see a game that use those. I don't have uh, a great example of an art style that I want to see a game in that doesn't exist but I wanted to mention Engare which is um, a game based on the patterns in Persian uh, rugs basically. Uh, those kind of uh, rotationally symmetric um really intricate, they often look like flowers, um, those kinds of patterns. And the game Engare, I don't know if I'm saying that right, um, is one where you have to generate those patterns by sort of marking a point on something that's going to rotate, and as it rotates, that will go around. Um, a spirograph a thing? Yeah. <laughs> is that what I'm thinking of? That Like, where you have a, a sort of plastic... Yeah. Um, template thing that With you put down on a piece, piece of paper. And then you've got a cog yeah. that's got a hole in. And you, you put, put your, your pen, pen in one spot yeah. and then you, you move it around and it makes this beautiful spiral thing. Mm. Uh, that kind of logic. Um, but the game mechanics lead you to create the, the same patterns that are present in traditional Persian um, rug art. And the same developer um, has also made a game called... <coughs> excuse me. Uh, let me actually check the name before I say it. Farsh which is about rolling rugs. And uh, this one is not so much about the art on the rugs. It's just a, a kind of like uh, puzzle game. It actually reminds me a bit of um, English Country Tune, uh, mm. Stephen Lavelle uh, game about sort of flipping one thing over and over on these abstract sort of um, grid-like paths. Um, and yeah, it's cool that one person has made two different games about Persian rugs. <laughs> um <laughs> But yeah, it's also cool to see that thing. There is a, there's a puzzle, um, 
if you want to play Angari completely unspoiled on puzzles, you should skip this bit. But um, it was revealed at the experimental gameplay session at GUC, so it's something the creator himself has shown off about the game, um, where the pattern you are tasked with making does not really look like something you could make by rotating this this wheel type thing. Um, it, it's sort of like this... I think it's like an up-down line, mm. and you've got to figure out where to put this point such that it will trace that pattern. And if you bring up the game's menu, it slides in from the bottom of the screen. So you can do that, then put the point on the top of the menu, and then dismiss the menu. And when it slides down, it makes that pattern. <laughs> <laughs> hmm. I think... I don't know. I... I like seeing games explore what's possible within digital spaces yeah. more than I enjoy games that sort of seek to hark back and often misunderstand fundamentally what an art movement <laughs> actually was about or, mm. you know, like take the um, superficial like manifestations of that and don't really do anything with what it. What if like an Escher painting, right? Um, <laughs> but like, so it's stuff like Scanner Somber, which was the introversion project yeah. where you could spit um, little dots of light, like a LiDAR scan of your area and get a sense of the space just by this spectrum of dots that were then spattering the walls and things. And that game, I, I don't feel like they made great use of the technology in the game that they created and I think that it didn't do well commercially so I'm worried that it might just sort of sink without a trace but the thing that I wish had happened with that is that they'd made it a, a, an open source thing that people could actually experiment hmm. with and come up with interesting things of their own and so that's stuff that I'm interested in and also the stuff that people are doing with tilt brush and like with yeah. plugging that into VR games mm. or creating, um, there's a guy called Isaac Cohen who makes really interesting small experiences some are games, some are more like installation art pieces and I'm I'm really interested in installation art in virtual spaces because that's really interesting because it can play with scale in a way that you can't in real life um so i think it's more about i would like to see game designers and game adjacent creators experiment more with what you can do in a digital space rather than just recreating either photorealism to some degree or mm just repeating or riffing on art styles and game genres that have been existing for a while now. Did we talk about Scanner Somber just now? I'm not sure that we did. I can't remember. I played it while I was away in Seattle, and at that time it wasn't out, so I couldn't talk about it. Did um, we do a rest podcast about it? Or... I don't know. Hmm. Um, we can talk about it a bit now if you'd like. Yeah, it was. Um, I did see it a bit outrezzed. Um, but yeah, it's a real departure for introversion. I mean, all their games are departures, really. That's what I like about them. <laughs> Each one is just like, it's let's do something utterly different. It's a prison architect. <laughs> <laughs> let's not go there. <laughs> um, it's, yeah, it's first person. They've never done a first person game before. Um, 
and uh, they had a couple of prototypes. Actually, at Res, they they were showing. Uh, I think we did say this. Uh, they were showing two different prototypes, and they were asking people which one they should make. And I think Scanner Sombra won. The other one was a bomb diffuser. Yeah, thing. which was a bit um, eclipsed by. Um, uh, keep talking and nobody explodes. Yeah. Uh, maybe not eclipse, but just that made the marketplace a bit crowded for that particular genre. Um, and yeah, scanner somewhere you're as you say you're firing a scanner that that shoots thousands of dots a second out into the world, and each one is coloured according to its distance from you right now. So as you move through the world, things that are closer to you go from cool colours to hot colours, um, and. Uh, if that sounds abstract, when you're playing the game, it's immediately obvious which things are close to you and which things are far from you. It's like looking at sort of like that Starfield uh, screensaver in Windows. You know, mm. um, your brain just instinctively interprets it and and reads that information as three dimensional, uh, which is great. And because you are, there is no for most of the game, there is no pre-placed dots. You are creating them all yourself. You're firing them out into the world. And you can kind of change the aperture of your scanner to be really wide and sparse or really narrow and tight to give more definition to an area, to like spray a certain you part You find of the... different nozzles as you go through <laughs> as well. Yeah, <laughs> like you, you unlock do a burst nozzles. scan for like yeah, at, very at points, which is good for just getting like a sketch of an area really quickly. Yeah. Um, and yeah, you can tighten the, the focus of your scanner to scan one particular area in great detail, probably loads of dots there. And all those dots just stay there forever. And you, there's even like a map mode where um, it zooms out and just shows all the dots you've ever created since mm. this whole start of the game. And the entire, you know, if you've ever seen a, a 3D, uh, an FPS map from the sort of editor view, um, it's this very wormy, it looks like an antal kind of... Uh, or like an intestine or something. Yeah. And so that, but in these beautiful dots that are, of which there are millions, um, all suspended in 3D space and color-coded with these beautiful colors. Sometimes really I would like try and go without scanning for a while so that I would have a blank space through <laughs> which to look at like the world. Oh, right. You know, like, cause you don't see, you can see through walls if you haven't scanned them, basically. Yeah. It's just a blank. Hmm. Um, and so if you don't scan a particular section, you can go through it, like trying to feel it out as you go, like glitching against things, figuring it out, <laughs> yeah. and then turn around and you just sort of see the stuff that you scanned at the beginning or earlier before you had that break as if you're sort of somehow outside at all, which is really interesting. Yeah. So, um, so the, the, the reason that you can only see these dots and nothing else is that the cave you're in is pitch black. Um, and so there's no light source at all. So it is, you are seeing through your own eyes. It's not like a computer simulation or anything. Um, uh, You've got a virtual headset, yeah, though, so, yeah, uh, to interpret right at, that. Right at the start, you do, you are seeing actual cave. There is some real light. It is uh, a first-person game in which you are seeing a world, and then you put on a headset that lets you see the dots as well. Um, and then for the rest of the game, it's, it's um, pretty much just the dots. Um, and so when you're seeing through stuff, you're, it's not because you have X-ray vision. It's because you're only seeing the dots, and the dots are, are tracked digitally. Um, and... Uh, yeah, that map view when it when it zooms out and sees everything really is like a sublime experience. It's amazing. Um, one of the most visually striking things I've seen in games in years. And the whole game in general, just uh, rarely seen a game with a visual motif that, that works that well and is that fresh and interesting. And, and what it does is makes walking around a cave with not much in it fascinating. I like will just, you know, the, the game's about 
three or four hours, I think. Mm. Um, and for that length of time, it, it sustained me to just walk around spaces and explore them and find out what shape they are. And I would yeah. just do that again and again. Like it, it sort of sustains you feeling out space in a, in mm. a very specific way. Like you, d- you can't just glance at it and go over the stalactite, over the statue and the set of steps. <laughs> You're trying to figure out like what this stuff is. And if, um, and it, it changes how I think you build that space as well, because you're like, okay, what would be striking in terms of a shape that someone could encounter? And also things like if you're leading them through a, sh- a small tunnel, it's like it almost, you want the, um, the, the sides of the tunnel to be almost ribbed in some way, because otherwise hmm. you can't get a sense of, that distance as easily like how Hmm. how deep it is or how far you've come that kind of stuff um but yeah because i was so interested in oh are you gonna you know make it open source or make it moddable or like make it so that for example if someone has a particular form of color blindness you could change the color palette so Hmm. that it isn't just you know like from you know reds to blues um but I, i think that they were just sort of interested in creating their own experience and sort of seeing what would happen but their experience ended up just being a bit of a like not very interesting in and of itself like slight horror game yeah it's got horror elements and i i feel like there's a I think there's some really chilling stuff to be done with this mechanic in a horror context but it didn't do any of it for me like, um, I did get scared and I had to leave and I haven't finished that game, but it was, that's only because I'm like the world's easiest target. Like, <laughs> I didn't feel like it was doing anything that I haven't seen in other games or that I'm not, it's just that I'm susceptible to it and yeah. I have to leave. <laughs> it always looked like a tech demo that had kind of perhaps gone beyond its parameters as a full game. Yeah, I don't know. The full game's pretty short. It's not. Uh, I don't actually know the price off the top of my head, but I feel like it's not expensive. Hmm. Uh, like Prison Architect is at least $30, and uh, there's all these different editions, and they go up to like um, at least $60. I think it goes even higher than that. Hmm. Um, I'm pretty sure this is a lot cheaper than that. Um, and it's short and just a self-contained thing. Um, but yeah, the, the horror elements didn't work for me at all. Um, it was always sort of making loud noises to indicate a horror moment and then sometimes I would literally not even know what it's talking about it's like well, what horror moment are you talking about and then I'd turn around like oh something way behind me I guess that was supposed to be scary but I didn't even see it and then a lot of other things were like I see that but it's look really silly to me <laughs> and I, the thing I really wanted was like you spray a wall and it looks like a flat wall and then after you sprayed it a bunch of the dots just move in a humanoid way like that, oh, that yeah. part of the wall just walks away <laughs> like or can that you imagine would, if you were spraying and suddenly like you were spraying something in front of you and it was just revealing a human body that was like looking at you and you're just like <laughs> okay <laughs> I see <laughs> So, yeah, but um, it does so some really neat effects, like if you spray water with these dots, mm, oh, the yeah. dots kind of drift away and blur, oh, which nice. is really nice. Yeah. Um, and there are some uh, really beautiful sequences. Like there's a, once, uh, you know, combining with that water effects, you get on a boat at one point, and nothing much happens on the boat, but it's just a beautiful experience. Just going, there's some lovely music, and um, that water effect's really nice. The water also reflects all the dots you've sprayed on the ceiling, which mm. is awesome. Um, and my biggest problem with it was that because it's so just the, the that whole premise of you can't see anything unless you spray dots on it um, is inherently kind of spooky. And you're discovering strange things down there. And I wanted I was so up for like, yes, this is terrifying. I want to be terrified by this and I want to like 
be excitedly and uh, discovering it and um, be, you know, both excited and afraid. Uh, but the fiction of it... So I played a little bit before release, so I can't 100% say for sure that this is how it ended up, but I can't imagine they completely reversed the fiction in between. <laughs> you know, I played a few weeks, I think, before release. Um, uh, the fiction is completely counter to that. The fiction is that you're... You've already been here, and you and your team are recreating. You lost all your scanner data, and now you've just got to go around and tediously recreate it all. Oh, I see. Um, so you know what's down there already. Yeah. That's what it says at the start. Um, uh, maybe I shouldn't critique it for this, because I haven't actually checked that the final version mm-hmm. does say this, but it, it's hard to imagine that they totally backtracked on that. Um, but yeah, you're sort of chatting with your colleagues, but there's no sense of, of excitement or... or or fear or mystery to that. It's all just like, oh, we've got to do this again. And here we go. <laughs> and then also the place you discover, um, the more I got into it, the less mysterious and strange it was. And the more it was just, oh, this is just a place people could go to any time. Um, and it lost its mystique a lot. I, I felt like the, the visual style was communicating a huge amount of mystique. And then the fiction was directly contradicting it. Like, it was worse than if it just had no fiction at all and didn't explain anything. Mm. It's just wiki hole. <laughs> yeah. I definitely preferred talking to them about the actual like technical side of it and the creating of it and the potential of it than I did to playing mm. it, which is a shame. But anyway, um, yeah, like I, I would like to just see more stuff where people experiment with, with the art that is now possible within games rather mm. than. Yeah, definitely agree with that. Uh, Ellen Beardwood writes, Dear Charisma and Constitution, quite relevant to our RPG stats discussion. <laughs> I was listening to your discussion about why games, especially the sprawling RPGs you'd expect to be best suited to it, don't tend to make fertile ground for tabletop rule sets, while a lot of movie works do, and wanted to contribute an observation. The main characters in movies don't hoover up side quests everywhere they go. So much of the ancillary universe remains a mystery. Obi-Wan and Luke did not get to the cantina and spend 15 minutes talking to strangers at every table in the hope someone would offer them some slightly better robes if they killed 10 rompraps for them, because that would be awful. Movie protagonists generally follow the critical path, leaving plenty of space around them for interesting things to happen. Players don't. If anything, the best game candidates for tabletop rule sets would be the linear ones that nonetheless have very well-developed worlds to inhabit, where as a player you only see a tiny part of what's happening around you. Your thoughts and plots are as ever appreciated. <laughs> I don't know. Like, because part of me is just back on my regular uh, anger throne regarding <laughs> um, the length of movies nowadays, <laughs> yeah. which is far too long and everyone needs an editor and nothing needs to be two and a half hours long. I'm sorry, it doesn't. Um, so to me, it's like, well, they seem to have been doing side quests because otherwise, how did they pad that nonsense out for as long <laughs> as they did? And like, Lord of the Rings, they were forever doing side quests, were they not? They really were. Mm. Yeah. Um, but I do broadly take their point. I was actually wondering about maybe like, uh, procedural generation might lend itself to tabletop <laughs> rule sets because you'd need rule sets in place to actually you know, generate the the world consistently and to make sure that the experiences were sort of broadly um, comparable but different each time. So that might be an interesting ground. Yeah, I've always thought that like pen and paper stuff is most interesting when there's um, either like a metaphysical fabric or a social fabric that you can mess with in some way and use to establish your identity. So Numenera is great because it, it has this massive like incredible 
incredibly detailed metaphysical description of how its various worlds and universes and artifacts interact and you can express yourself through those because like there's loads of room for you to define it um but mostly it's like um i've one of the my favorite pen and paper rpgs was like dark heresy which is a warhammer 40,000 rpg and its rule set is horribly bloated when it comes to actually interactions and its dice system's horrible mm. but the warhammer 40k fiction is a really fucking cool social fabric to go and mess with and games just don't do e- either of those two things well ever mm. <laughs> like they, they just can't present you with enough information like if, if a game was to present you with like a numenera style like level of detail about how the physics of this world works how magic works in this place um you're going to want to mess with it and you're, you're going to want it to be a sandbox of some kind that actually lets you start playing with that stuff but games never do that like the, the games can't simulate that level of complexity they're going to create an entire you know new way of gravity on dimensions working you know? <laughs> um it's, it's just beyond like it's beyond what games can do it's just and i also thing. think that if a game is linear the the best examples of linear games that i can think of do the thing that we decided was a bad idea the the previous time this came up which is that they tend to revolve around one character like the zelda games are ultimately pretty linear because mm. it's you know you're going through a bunch of dungeons you're reaching a particular end point right i mean less so maybe with breath of the wind but um breath of the wind wind yeah okay fine one of those words um and so i think it then resists more than one person getting to be the hero of that thing without it feeling weird which is it it brings you back to that awkwardness i guess Hmm. i always um tabletop games like the mainstream ones are usually pretty streamlined but then you know, the ones for tabletop enthusiasts, every time I am told the rules of them, mm. there's always this, like, thing in my brain that goes, all right, here we fucking go. I always just <laughs> play over. And, and so initiative like, points uh, means you can draw one initiative card, and that gains you three so other points that can be spent on this Would you potentially be interested in playing the My Little Pony uh, <laughs> paper <laughs> game with me? Because... I think it looks like it might be fun. And also, if it's aimed at children, <laughs> how difficult can it be, like, fundamentally to get to grips with, right? Is this pen and paper as in, like, there's a DM and um, So I don't know enough about it. All I know is that at UK Games Expo, I created a character and gave it some stats, <laughs> and it was lovely. And I don't actually know. But there is a rule book. It it's like fun. It's like one of those cartoon annuals that you'd get. Like, it's that kind of... <laughs> and I just yeah like I thought that that might actually be a fun thing to do that isn't as heavy and as like fantasy-esque as some of the other ones because yeah. I do struggle a bit with hmm. telling them apart in some ways need, <laughs> I feel like we need a term for I want to call it like rule weight like hmm. the, the sort of the, in, the mental burden of the rules you explain and that burden is smaller if the rule you're explaining is sort of naturally um, uh, explicable. Like, if you're trying to explain that uh, when fire hits oil, it will set fire to it, the yeah. mental weight of that is pretty low because that uh, conforms to our expectations. But things like the pyre mechanics, all mm. of them are so abstract that it takes a lot of brain space to store them. It's like, oh, I have this aura, but when I attack the aura... I've said it a few times in this podcast and I'm actually not 100% sure. Does my aura shrink as I charge my attack or does it disappear as soon as I start charging my attack? 
and the attack grows. Yeah. There's, there's mechanical difference there, and that's the reason I can't tell you how that works, even though I've done it a, a thousand times, mm. is that it, there's no intuitive answer to that question. Mm. Um, I'm sure the answer they've gone with makes sense, and there's a mechanical reason for it, but uh, even if it, it explicitly told me the answer to that question, it's a lot of work to store that information because it doesn't relate to anything else I know. And all of the rules in, in Pi are like that. Every single part of it is is abstract and not intuitive. And uh, it, and that's the actual rules. I think there aren't that many of them. And it's not a hugely complex game. It does do a good job of, of keeping those rules few, but the rules themselves are so abstract that they have a lot of cognitive weight. Mm. And uh, yeah, definitely a lot of board games have that as well, where they're just with the... For the designer, the, the cost of introducing a new type of card or concept or point system or this is is so low. They just think, oh, this will help the game, so we'll introduce this. Mm. And as a player, you're like, oh, you've done two of these, you can't do a third. Yeah. <laughs> There's no room in my brain to store a third. I quite like rule weight, but like maybe this is a thing where if any of the listeners have a suggestion, mm. like a snappy... Yeah. Summary. As I was talking about, I used the phrase cognitive weight, which is an established thing, I think. Yeah. That or cognitive a... load is yeah, like that's a, 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 an established yeah, term like for that kind of stuff. Yeah. So maybe that's, that's all we need. Uh, right. but th- we had that problem with, um, pandemic legacy. Mm. I love pandemic. I love, we had a good time with risk legacy, but we never finished it. Um, and then pandemic legacy, we were enjoying it, but, Jesus Christ, like, there's so many rules that just keeps introducing, like... even like, when it's, like, it's stuff that makes sense individually, but there are too many moving parts. Yeah. Like, Twilight Imperium was horrific for that. I just, I remember I just sat and looked at Quinn's and I was like, I'm going to make some moves, and then you can just tell me if they're legal. Because <laughs> at this point, I it's quite late in the day, and we all need to... <laughs> we all need to get on with our things, so who knows? Uh... Trundles writes, uh, I had a nightmare where I was invited to the Crank and Crowbar and I was the only one who said thanks for listening, everybody. <laughs> well, we all have that nightmare every podcast. It's, uh, a terror we all share. Yeah, I still so can't do the, like, the slurred thanks for listening, everybody, because I wasn't there when it first happened and so I'm always afraid that I'll do the wrong slurring or it's like, it's not my joke and so I always just say it very properly because it's like, I feel very self-conscious now. <laughs> Definitely, there have been a few podcasts where I start saying it and no one else does, and it's just me. <laughs> <laughs> there is like, there is definitely an intake of breath, and then if it, if it's Chris hosting the podcast, he'll look around the room just so the <laughs> listeners have this in, insight into mm. it. But he'll he'll do a deep breath and then do the look, and then I'll be like, oh god, I'm gonna have to try and say it. I can't say it. I'll, I'll just do my version, and then you two do it, and I'll be like, okay. <laughs> yeah, I'll, if I sense I'm not going to be joined in by anyone else, I'll say it more normally. Than <laughs> if everyone's doing it, I'll slow like crazy. Well, it's episode one nine nine, and maybe I, by episode two hundred, we should uh, forge some new, yeah, odd rituals. Oh yeah, yeah. maybe more rules, <laughs> more cognitive weights for y'all. Or maybe we should say thanks for listening, everybody, at the beginning, so that you know, in case people don't make it to the end, right. so that they know that they're thanked. I'm not sure many. But do. If, they ha- if they stop before that, we don't thank them. Well, maybe, yeah. <laughs> no thanks. <laughs> Uh, Ian says, for Chris and Thomas, what is your personal policy on, with reading gar- guides and watching videos when playing a Souls-like? Uh, so yeah, Chris and I write like, deep into our uh, Bloodborne playthrough on YouTube, and you should go to Grant Gropar's YouTube channel and you'll find those episodes going up every Sunday. Um, so 
I tend to go into Soulsborne games quite pure. I want to kind of like struggle through them. Um, but there's absolutely no shame whatsoever, especially with Dark Souls 1, <laughs> in going to guides to figure out where the hell you're supposed to go at any given point. And, and in fact, I think given the fact that getting into one Souls game unlocks all of them before you, like it teaches you, once you've done most of one Souls game, you can go to Bloodborne or you go to uh, like Dark Souls 2, Dark Souls 3, and it will teach you'll have all the tools basically in your possession to unlock those games and you'll know the kind of tricks they play. So just going through Dark Souls 1 with a guide as much as you need to, I think it's a worthwhile and good use of guides and videos. And videos are especially good for Dark Souls because it's such a kind of like entwined 3D map that you just sometimes literally need to watch people go the routes to mm. unlock the things and just watch someone do that on a video and hearing someone describe it as like oh go left at the demon and then down the stairs and then turn the second right into this crooked alley and then you know uh, the the are the too complicated to really fit into prose so yeah I think um, video walkthroughs are rad I think there's loads of amazing video resources for like not just um, walkthrough purposes but for like unlocking the lore and unlocking mm. a lot of the cool stories behind those games and like, if you never if you try it and you don't really enjoy the game, just go and watch those videos anyway for the story. Just to, you know find out what everyone's kind of so excited about. And there are lots of really good videos out there. Um, having said that, I can't name any of them off the top of my head, <laughs> but I'll um, I had it this week, so I'll put some initial notes. What do you guys do when you do use guides? Like, do you get in that loop where your brain? You know when you're on a night out and you break the seal and you need the loo for the rest of the night after that? I find that with guides, it's quite hard to switch off that that knowledge <laughs> that you can just look it just up if there, it right. gets a bit difficult. Or like, you know, like once you've looked up one thing, I do find it quite hard to be disciplined and to just go back to, mm. to not looking up or not asking. So how th- do you guys feel about that? I think the thing with um, Souls and Bloodborne um, games, it's... The bits where you get stuck are always just like raw skill challenges. It's always a boss that's really hard to beat. Mm. There's only so much that a guide can really help you with. Like you're gonna have to dodge it yourself. You're gonna have to, you know, turn up your own combat styles actually to beat that thing. And it's not like um. I mean, I always get this with adventure games, and I got this playing Quern. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I really like how you say that. Um, and whereas the, there was one bit where I just was a bit stuck, and. Your time is worth more than, you know, yeah. than that. You know, you just go to a wiki and look it up. It's Old school point and clicks are my awful one for that. Yeah. So I'm just yeah. like, do you know what? I don't care to find out yeah. what this armadillo's for at this point. <laughs> I am so done. Life is too short to, <laughs> to persist, like, beyond the point of frustration. And there are always better adventure games to play. So, mm. um, I, but yeah, with Soul specifically, a lot of it is you get some combat tips, but you're going to ultimately have to do it yourself. There's a nice thing with Bloodborne, especially, um, because like summons basically are the cheat mode in the game. So if you come up against a boss that you really can't get past and there's a summon sign, if you summon an NPC in, they'll basically ace it for you and help you out, which is actually a neat way around it. Um, but yeah. That's cool. Yes. There was an interesting uh, discussion in the Roguelikes channel of our Discord, um, which you can join. Uh, the <laughs> link will be on our site somewhere. I'll do all that stuff at the end. It's on the um, page, I think. Yeah. Yeah, on the homepage. Uh, but we have a Roguelikes channel, uh, which uh, until recently was largely dominated by discussion of Dead Cells and Cave Blazers, both of which I've talked about here. Um, 
Uh, but just recently, there's a Crypt of the Necrodancer update. I have not played that game. And, oh, yeah, um, it got a DLC, didn't it? Yeah. Or like an cool. expansion or something. Um, so I don't know anything about the, the update, but uh, somebody there was saying that they absolutely love that game and it's kind of like up there with Spelunky, uh, possibly better than Spelunky. And they think it's partly because they never looked up anything about it. So they literally mm. just avoided all the information about secrets and stuff. And um, my policy for Spelunky was I never looked at a wiki, um, but I didn't resist finding out things from friends. If, if a friend told me that, I wasn't like, oh, no, spoilers, don't tell me that stuff. It was uh, I would take that information, but it, it had to be like socially organic in that yeah. way. I couldn't go out and ask for any information. It had to all come to me. I remember being at... Um, a GDC uh, when it was in the IGF and watching people play it. And, you know, obviously they're just playing the normal cave uh, first world levels. And uh, um, uh, somebody saying to me, I think it was Colin Northway actually, who was in the game as one of the characters. Um, <laughs> Uh, and he was saying something about the worm level. I was like, with well, the worm level? He's like, well, you know hell, right? Like, hell? This <laughs> what? <laughs> I had not found any secret levels in Splunky at all at that point. <laughs> and I was like, well, there's a worm level and there's hell. <laughs> in some ways, that's kind of cool because it gives you a thing that you don't know where it is and you need to to figure it out. Because I've, I've got the 1.0 build of uh, Slime Rancher because I was reviewing it at the moment. Um, it's only on 0.6, I think, until the first when mm. it comes out. And so I have a, a thing where it's teased areas that I have no idea where they are and I'm really <laughs> excited because I'm like, but where could they possibly be? Because I'm really used to this place now. But now I've got this like upgrade to 1.0 and now I'm not sure where I haven't been because I don't know what the world actually like has changed it's like <gasps> so I've now got um, a project within that and <laughs> so it's quite nice that, that to have that tease almost and just be like okay I know that hell is a thing now how would one get to hell <laughs> <laughs> yeah that's cool well that are all the questions we have time for this week um, you can send us questions at questions at creightoncrowbar.com uh, or you can tweet them at us. We are at creightoncrowbar on Twitter. Um, thank you to all our Patreon backers. You can back us on Patreon at patreon.com slash creightoncrowbar. You can watch all our video stuff, including these podcasts, in video form. Um, you'd just get a static image. This <laughs> um, you can like move your head back and forth if you want it to look like it's swaying, maybe. Yeah. That is youtube.com slash creightoncrowbar. Uh, you're spotting the pattern by this point. Um, is there anything else? Well, our website is creatingcrowbar.com and our Discord community is linked to from there. The URL is too complex to say with mortal words. <laughs> Only Cthulhu can truly say it. Um, and you can follow us individually. I am at Pentadact on Twitter, P-E-N-T-A-D-A-C-T. Thomas? I'm at P-C-T-U-D-O-B-Z-L-E-D-O. Pip W. Uh, <laughs> I'm at Philippa War, which is P H I L I P P A W A R. Hooray. Mm. Thanks, Thanks for listening, everybody. <laughs> <laughs> Everyone's so self conscious at that point. <laughs>